episode 5 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. You can come back every other week to get your bi-weekly dose of horror movie history. Today we're going to be transitioning into a new topic and starting on the rise of Euro horror. So all of that horror that was happening in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, might get into the 80s. So this is going to be chapter 2 and page 1 here on your books. We've got a little surprise tonight, welcoming in my first ever guest here. It's going to be Dave Dr. Shock Becker. You'll know him from Horror Movie Podcast, Land of the Creeps, DVD Infatuation, and the DVD Infatuation Podcast, also the Illustrated Fan, and I'm sure I'm missing some others, but Dave, how are you doing tonight? I am doing great, sir, and thank you so much for having me on. Um, I, like I said, I'm honored to be uh, your first guest, um, and especially for this topic. I think this is uh, th- this is um, an interesting one, you know, and it's a very, very, very wide, very, um, very wide range of films that can be discussed, especially with that uh, uh, that time period you're looking at. Yeah, I wanted to. And I'm sure later on down the road, I'm going to dig in deeper to certain topics we'll probably be discussing yep. tonight, especially in the coming weeks. I think I've got a couple and I wanted to get into maybe even like a Barbara Steele episode where we're oh, talking about wow, those films yeah. of Barbara Steele. So. Definitely wanted to give this broad overview to kind of give an introduction to maybe those not familiar with European horror at that time. I know there are so many films there and some people do not like watching subtitles, so I'm sure there's plenty here that we'll talk about. Before we get started here to celebrate my first guest and because we're talking or will be talking sometime over the next few episodes about this movie, Um, I'm going to be giving away a Blu-ray copy of the Criterion Eyes Without a Face. Oh, nice. Yeah. So head on over. You can enter a couple ways. You can go over to Twitter. I will be putting a post out about this giveaway, and you can retweet it and follow the podcast to enter. Or if you're not really on Twitter, um, that's not your thing. Just head on over to iTunes and leave a review there, and I'll enter you in that way as well. Really excited about that. Really excited to be trying to engage with the community there and give away something for the listeners and criterion. Anytime you can give away a criterion collection, uh, disc, that's impressive because they are the, uh, uh, them and arrow, I think are sort of the cream of the crop. Yes. I love arrow. I have a whole collection, Dave, whenever, um, tip here, anytime I see, I think target usually does like a buy two get one free sale. That's usually the time because those arrow and criterions do not go on sale very often. No, not at all. So, I had uh, picked up a copy of this for myself and a copy of Seven Samurai, and I just oh, decided wow. I'd pick up a copy of this since I'd be talking about it at some point to give out to the listeners. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's really great. And that's a great a great movie and a great disc also. I mean, Criterion yep. does such an incredible job um, putting things out. I don't know. Have you ever seen those videos on YouTube of people, when, of uh, like celebrities, when they get to go into the Criterion closet? No, I've never seen that. That sounds so interesting. They they get they're given a bag and they're allowed to take anything they want from the closet. And these are celebrities and they're oh, talking wow. about. I remember Terry Gilliam walked out with the Ingmar Bergman set, that <laughs> like whatever that that like that eighteen pound set whatever it was. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you get a good chance, go on YouTube and just look, look, do a search on Criterion Closet and all of these celebrities and they talk about the movies. They say, here's what you know. Here's the reason I. I take them. His reason I love them. Sometimes they just talk about the movie and don't take it because it's one of their favorites. But it's really, really interesting. And it's a wide range of celebrities. I mean, I mean, I'm talking like Michael Cena 
all the way up to oh, um like you know uh oh god what was her name um was it agnes varda i'm not sure if she's still with us or not but a, a wide range of celebrities have gone into the Criterion Closet over the years. They've been doing it for quite some years, and uh, it's definitely worth checking out. That's awesome. I know they don't have a wide range of horror selection. I think I've got about half of the horror movies that they do have in the collection. Right. But, but, but their they releases are so out, good. They oh, go did ahead. put out – I'm sorry. They did put out Night of the Living Dead. Yes, they did. I got duped on that, Dave, because I had bought long time ago one of those bootleg copies that I didn't realize was bootleg copies of Night of the Living oh. Dead. You know, one of those they just push out there like so yeah, many well, pieces. Uh, unfortunately, that's what happened. It, it was in it's in public domain. Yep. You yep. know, it's in public domain. So anybody can put out a disc of Night of the Living Dead. Anybody can use a clip of Night of the Living Dead in their movie, audio or video. Yes, all the time <laughs> because it's public domain. And it's all because, you know, George Romero had copyrighted it as I think Night of Anubis, then changed the title to Night of the Living Dead, never recopyrighted it. So the very first time it played in the theater, it was automatically in the public domain. That's just so sad. It is. That story always it's gets so me. sad. And, but I'm so happy he made Dawn and Day afterwards. Yes. He was able to yep. profit off of those anyway. Yeah. No, I've since remedied that. But I remember the first time popping that in. And I'm like, this isn't right. This is just a terrible transfer. This is someone no. take, took this off YouTube and put it on the disc. And, and there's even one where they've put added scenes in there uh, uh, with uh, what was it? He, he was zombie number one. Oh, boy, what was his name? He even directed a few movies. I know he directed, like, Flesh Eater and um, The Majorettes. I can't remember his name now. But he was zombie number one, the one who uh, who goes after uh, Barbara and Johnny in the, in the graveyard. Oh, yeah. In the first movie, he became a filmmaker in his own right. And he directed um, Flesh Eater, where he once again played a zombie, um, <laughs> and a slasher called The Majorettes. Bill Heinzman. Bill Heinzman. There, there's one of the Night of the Living Deads out there where... They shot additional footage with Bill Heinzman and put it in there. But meanwhile, he's much older. It just it yeah. just didn't blend. It just didn't blend in well. Uh, uh, but they were they were saying like the you know like I don't even know how they promoted it to be honest with you. I think I actually I I owned at least three different versions of Night of the Living Dead on DVD. Um, I had it, my fr- a friend of mine bought it for me on video back in the 80s. It was the first time I'd seen it. Uh, but yeah, the, the, I, and you'll watch him, you say, oh, this is crap. I got to get another one. And then you get another one and go, wow, this is crap too. Thank God Criterion. <laughs> yes. Thank God yep. they did something with it. I think I got, so I think I got on, caught on that one, like Carnival of Souls as well. I don't think yeah. that's public domain. I don't know if it is or not, but. I got a bad copy of that. And then one of the movies I want to talk about later tonight, um, I got a bad copy of that one, too. And it sounded like you could just hear a fan in the background the entire movie. Like, <laughs> Oh, boy. Carnival yeah. Souls is one. And that's another one Criterion did. Yes. You know, yes. I think I might have seen that on some of those. That might have been on some of those Mill Creek sets. Yes. Carnival of Souls. Maybe, maybe I not. So. I can't I say so. for that sure. That sounds familiar, but. Yeah, I, I think it might have been. I know Night of the Living Dead was because, you know, being public domain, it's easy to throw that on there. Um, just like every Three Stooges set that uh, that a lot of these, these these you know, third rate DVD com- companies put out. They always put out Malice in the Palace, Disorder in the Court um, <laughs> and the Brideless Groom because those are the three Three Stooges shorts that are in the public domain. So there's a, every time you would get a, a cheap ass <laughs> Three Stooges <laughs> DVD, those would be the three shorts on there because they're in the public domain. Oh, 
Yeah. Whatever they got it. Everyone's trying to make a buck, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Dave, if you'll allow me, I'm going to go into a little background, I guess, on the subject, maybe a little preamble here yeah, um, to get us started. And we can yeah. just kind of riff off from there. Um, so we actually, this kind of almost leads in from where I left off on episode four, talking about the end of Val Luton's career in the fall of RKO and the fall of the golden age, really, in Hollywood, the changing of the guard there, where they're moving more to kind of spectacle films with bigger budgets. And you get into the sword and sandal type stuff and you get into the sci-fi stuff as far as horror or for the most part, I mean, we got plenty that weren't science fiction, but that was a big thing. Um, going into the 50s and 60s. So it was almost like the U.S. was just set up to take this back seat. And I think it really, there was the time, you know, we're after World War II at this point. There's changes coming throughout some of these countries where they're being able to make more films. They're having more freedoms. And I think a lot of them took up the mantle, whether that's the U.K., whether that's France or Italy or Spain, I think we got a lot of good stuff coming out of here in this post-World War II world where Hollywood's kind of, I would guess, not focusing as much on horror. That's my understanding. Dave, I don't know how you feel about that particularly, but... Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, one of the things I remember in Italy, especially right after or during World War II, like it was mm-hmm. right after and no, I think it was right after World War II um, is when you had the, oh God, was it Neorealist? And that was that was done out of necessity because the studios had been (laughs) destroyed. You know, they they couldn't shoot in the studio. So uh, Roberto Rossellini, Vittorio De Sica, um, you know, even even Federico Fellini at the beginning of his career there were shooting out in the streets. They were shooting, (laughs) um, you know, these sort of realistic films. And the films that fit fit into that, you know, the Bicycle Thieves, Bicycle Thieves is the official title of that uh, open city. You know, Roberto Rossellini did that in Germany, year zero. Those type of films, uh, Shoeshine, were, you know, made at a time, you know, in Italy. They, they were still making films, but they were showing the situation, the, 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 you know, what had happened in post-war Italy uh, and what, it, you know, sort of depression. I mean, and, and what the uh, what people were going through. I mean, Open City takes place sort of during the war. But Bicycle Thieves and all uh, uh, Shoeshine, they, they, they're they sort of set like just in that post-war period. So that that was out of necessity, shooting in the streets and, you know, showing what was going on in Italy at the time. Uh, yeah. And it's funny because neorealism then influenced the French New Wave. New Wave, yes. Which yep. <laughs> then influenced Hollywood's um, sort of uh, younger generation. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember Dennis Hopper saying in Easy Riders, Raging Bulls that they were going to see the newest Truffaut films and yep. the newest stuff by Bergman, as opposed to what Hollywood was putting out uh, in, in the uh, in the later 60s. So it's just very cyclical, you know, yeah. that the neorealist eventually, you know, just sort of came down to um, and it just went from there. It, it's interesting. It's very interesting how. Like I said, the neorealist, then French New Wave, and and the British New Wave happened at the same time as the French New Wave. Movies like um, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, uh, The Entertainer with uh, Laurence Olivier. You had the British and the French New Wave sort of happening at the same time in the late 50s, early 60s. And then, again, those were influencing 
the younger generation of American filmmakers. So it's it's very interesting yep. how that sort of um, just how cyclical it is. Oh, it is. It's it's crazy how cyclical it is. And I definitely want to do an episode on this somewhere down the line because this is so interesting to me is and I don't want to say anything bad about those 50s and 60s american films because there's a lot of good stuff there there's a lot there of is. westerns yes. there there's nicholas ray nicholas ray was working in the 50s yep. um douglas sirk was working in the 50s so you definitely had some amazing movies being yep. turned out um but got when Jimmy it got Stewart to putting yeah. out a lot of good stuff yes when it got to the late 60s you know, I mean, uh, I, what was it? There's, there's a movie, there's a book out there, and I know Quentin Tarantino has talked about this. God, I can't remember what it is. But it's looking at the five Best Picture nominees, I want to say from 67, was it, or 68? I can't remember. But it was the year where the five Best Picture nominees were The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, In the Heat of the Night, oh, I can't remember the fourth, fourth uh, Dr. Doolittle, which is sort of old Hollywood. Yeah, you know, yeah, with the that's musical. very, yep. Definitely. Oh, God, what was the fifth one? Damn it, I can't remember what it is now. You know, that's um, a good list right there, though. That's a pretty. It is. Oh, The Graduate. Did I say The Graduate? Yeah, you I said The Graduate. I, yep. said, I said The Graduate. Okay. Yep. Um, uh, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde in the Heat of the Night, uh, Dr. Doolittle. Ah, damn it, I can't remember the fifth one. I got to look <laughs> it up now because it's yeah, going to drive ahead. me crazy if I don't know what it was that year. Um, but uh, there's a book out there that talks about those. And it's kind of like Tarantino says. Tarantino gave this talk in front of an audience, and it was it was in nineteen. He was talking about the year nineteen seventy, and the way he put it, it was that nineteen seventy was sort of a pivotal year in American cinema because old Hollywood was dead, but didn't know it yet. Yep. And new Hollywood had taken over, but didn't realize it yet. You know, it, it yep. was sort of that at that year in 1970 was sort of the transition from old Hollywood to new Hollywood. Meanwhile, I've got to look this up. I've got to go look right up ahead, this, Dave. What, what the hell was, yeah, I'll and you go ahead. I'll, you, continue, you continue until I <laughs> yeah. find this out. Yeah. So I don't want to say that Hollywood was getting stale at this point, but what you're getting out of Europe at this point, they're taking risks. They're they're not afraid. They're not holding back. And they're coming out of a lot of turmoil. I mean, World War II turned the world upside down. And yes, America was involved in World War II, but we weren't having the war invade our homes. We didn't have Germany occupying France. We didn't have Mussolini in power in Italy and England getting bombed every night. And it, I think it set up. These, these were the kids that would eventually grow up and be these directors that were living through some of this World War II thing. And I think we just get where they're not afraid to take any kind of risk or go to any direction. I think we see this again later on in the late 90s and the aughts when international horror again comes to the forefront when the U.S. is busy in Hollywood making all these remakes because they don't want to put out any, any new ideas out there for the right. most so we get a lot of good indie films in the U.S. at that point, but we also have a lot of international films kind of taking up the torch. Uh, we had J-horror and the rise of the Korean horror and things like Let the Right One In, Troll Hunter. Just all the way through the aughts, we have these great international films, Wreck. Um, and I think it's a similar situation to what we're seeing here is they're not afraid to take risk. They're out there and they're going to make the movie they want to make. And... Sometimes that's not going to be safe, but I really respect him for doing that. 
I, I agree. And two, it's funny because two of my, you know, and you mentioned two of them right there um, with found footage. I mean, that's sort of, um, yep. well, I don't know that it originated in America because 1980 had Cannibal Holocaust. Yep. that was sort yep. of a found footage film, but then nothing for a lot of years until 1999, Eduardo Sanchez and his partner put out Blair Witch Project. And that sort of put it back in the forefront, you know, found footage. But yet my two favorite found footage movies are uh, or two of my favorite found footage films are Troll Hunter and Wreck. Yes. Done amazing. in other countries. Yep. You know, yep. both of them are just, especially Troll Hunter is my number one. I think Troll Hunter is just a masterpiece. Yeah. Of, you know, that they take this found footage and yet turn it into this monster film. I love it. And Wreck is another one I love. I think yeah. Wreck and, and Wreck 2. I yeah. think Wreck and Wreck 2 are both amazing films. And they're basically. Rec 2 takes place moments after or even during yes. what's happening in, in the first wreck. Yeah. And Dave, a funny. So have you seen um, Ghost Watch from, I think, 92? No. It was a one, faux, you know, like, that, BBC that's, that's broadcast. Like a, was that British? Yes, the British yeah. broadcast. I have yeah, not and it seen wasn't that, quite, and I want to. Yeah, I just watched it recently this October. And it's not quite found footage, but it's this kind of faux like on location kind of ghost hunting almost thing of what mm -hmm. we see now. And we even got that from Britain, but you're saying, yes, we got Blair Witch. And then how long was it until we got anything else from the U S was it paranormal activity where we got something big? I mean, paranormal I think rise activity of, might've yeah. been the next one. Yeah. Behind that the mask, I guess, uh, rise of Leslie Vernon is, would that's be kind of a, that's kind it, of a found yeah. footage, but that was very, mockumentary. That's, all, that's an indie. That's more yeah. of a yeah, mockumentary and an indie that, that one didn't quite make as big a splash as paranormal activity, yeah. although it should have, I think yeah. the, 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 you know, behind the mask, rise of Leslie Vernon is a great film. I really do. Agreed. Yep. I like that one a lot. Um, I like it even a little bit better than the paranormal activities. Yes. To be yeah. honest with you. I think I do, too. I think I like it. I've just recently uh, was going back and watching some of the series and I still like them, but they don't quite have that impact of the first time that I watched them. The no, they, they just they don't quite they don't quite have it. Um, and I always like the third one. I thought yeah. the third one was kind of yeah, interesting with what they were trying to do. Uh, by the way, the fifth movie was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner by Stanley. Oh, OK, that was okay. the fifth yeah. one. So it was in the heat of the night. Dr. Doodle, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. You had just a very a, uh, that was like sort of the biggest range of films. Yes. Um, as far as uh, style, as far as audience, you know, The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde were were appealing to a much different audience than Doctor Doolittle was, or uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Uh, and In the Heat of the Night won Best Picture that year. That was the oh, one wow. that actually won Best Picture. Any five of well, no, any four, you know four of them could have. I don't think Doctor Doolittle no, <laughs> no. had much of a chance at Best Picture. Personally, I would have probably gone with The Graduate uh, and yeah. maybe. Bonnie and Clyde damn close as in yeah. second. But, you know, it, it's just that shows that was where Hollywood um, that was where they had, had reached, you know, and then it was a couple years later. I think Paint Your Wagon came out and, and Hello, Dolly was coming around around this time. And that's what Hollywood was turning out, um, whereas the young uh, younger filmmakers, the independent not independents. I mean, they were releasing them through the studios, but they were doing more interesting stuff. And that yeah. was where Hollywood had changed. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that best picture uh, race there is a lot more interesting to me than some of the races we get nowadays. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to say. Unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. You know, and there's good stuff coming out. Oh, it's yeah. It's just it's just politics has taken uh -huh. over and yep. and 
and just um, what what you know, it's 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 almost as if it, it's a shame. It really is a shame because there's some great movies out there that just don't get the recognition um, they deserve. You know, I mean, I was yeah. very happy that Get Out had um, oh, at least had got won, a nod, yeah, at least got a nod, yes. But then I don't know. It horror, the horror genre when when it comes to the Academy Awards, they're still stuck back in the '80s with yeah. The slashers gave horror did a lot of damage. I love them. I do. I love those movies. But as far as the public perception, it gave horror a black eye. Yeah. You know, and and it sort of made people. But yet the horror genre is putting out so many interesting things mm. that, with new filmmakers. Yeah. You have you have the women. You have you have the um, you know, with Jordan Peele and and a lot of, um, uh, you know, African-American filmmakers putting out some great stuff, challenging stuff. Yep. But Hollywood Absolutely. is ignoring it because it's got horror. It's a it's a horror genre film, and it's a damn shame. Yeah, it's a damn shame. Well, Dave, I know you'd probably argue, and I think a lot of us would, that the '80s was maybe the best period for horror movies. But the the lasting effects of that, with kind of crashing the market, and we're stuck on sequels, and we get the '90s, and then you, like you said, the black eye with the the critics and the yeah. and Hollywood, and it kind of mm-hmm. did a lot of damage. Those slashers and everything else that was put out. Those <laughs> they did, and love. I love them. I yeah. love them. I could watch them anytime. I could watch Sleepaway Camp, you know, and then sleep. Yep. Uh, uh, all of these films, I could watch them anytime. But it was the 80s that sort of, yeah, that's the one that, and even in the 80s, there were some challenging things coming out yeah. that was that were being ignored because yep. horror was just the, you know, the, 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 the ugly stepchild that nobody wanted to pay any attention to back then. Yep. You know, and it's it's a shame. It's a it's a damn shame. And it took I mean, Silence of the Lambs in 91 was the first one. I think it was one of only three films that won the top five Academy Awards, um, you know, along with um, it happened one night back in the 30s and uh, one for the Cuckoo's Nest in 75. I think it was a 76 awards. You know, it won Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress and Screenplay, uh, mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs. But even that, you know, and then people like, well, it's even then there's like not really horror. It's more of a thriller. It's just something about <laughs> ah, horror. That was, horror. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I agree. I mean, you know, trust me, you watch that movie and you're horrified. Yeah. And what's happening in that film. I can have a movie about a serial killer and not be horrified. You know, oh, that, what's going on. that movie's disturbing. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Dave, do you know? Um, and I know recently um, Guillermo's gotten a little love. Did Pan's Labyrinth, was that nominated for anything or was that just best? best? It was. Film? It was. It was nominated for best foreign film and it might have even been up for best picture. It should have been. I mean, I, I, don't know I, what I know it was, it was up for against, best. But... I think it was up for the screenplay. I think it was up for the screenplay. And I agree with you. It should have been. It should have been nominated for best picture. I'm looking it up now, actually. I'm pretty. I know that was in my one of one of my top films that year. It was it's just it's amazing. Yeah, I mean it really is amazing. Um, let me see here. I'm looking at awards. It yeah, did that's... win three Oscars that year. Okay. It won cinematography, art direction, and it looks like makeup. Uh, it was nominated for best foreign language film of the year. Who did it lose to? Does it oh, say? Oh wow. Let me see because it did not win. Yeah, I don't know what else could have been out I'm in two looking, th- I'm looking it up now because I don't know what would have beaten it. Let me see what uh, was best foreign film that year. Because uh, that was when they, they weren't saying international. That was back when they were still calling it best foreign film. I'm trying to go slow. I don't want to go past it here. Here it is. Oh, The Lives of Others. 
which is okay. a good movie. The Lives of Others is a damn good movie. I can't, right. you know, take anything yep. away from it from that. But I still think Pan's Labyrinth is a better movie. Yeah. Even and the lives of others. Yeah. And that was when there was I remember seeing um, trailers for that and buzz for that. And that was when I was first getting into what I would call kind of real cinema, like um, mm-hmm. more international stuff. And yeah. more uh, I wasn't just watching, you know, Braveheart for the 15th time again. Um, <laughs> but that was a huge that had a huge impact on me and getting me into horror. So that's awesome. Yeah. And it's a great one. It really is. I mean, it's it's it's. And it's funny because the real life situation that that oh, young yeah. girl is in is more horrific than what yep. she's experiencing in that in that quote unquote fantasy world. Yeah. And Dave, that's a good point of what we were talking about, what these countries were going through um, in Spain, you know, with their civil war and their fascist rule there. They weren't able to even I think I've heard Guillermo talk about before. No one in Spain was even really able to tell that kind of story until what was that 60 years later? Right. 50, 60 years later until yeah. after the fall of the oh, nationalist. Yeah. There you go. Yes, the nationalist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Blanking there for a minute. But yeah, that was uh, that's that's crazy that the that was that painful to the people for the Civil War, which you probably think if the same was in America, we wouldn't make something about the Civil War for a long time afterwards either. But those are the things that cut deep there. The in these Oh, countries. yeah, absolutely. And and. Yeah. And, and the way that he portrays that in that film, I think, like I said, it's it's there are moments that are that are much more terrifying um, than anything that's happening in uh, with the fawn or any of those other characters. Oh, yeah. Which uh, I love those characters. Um, yeah, I do, too. Creepy. I do, too. Very but, creepy. The one with the eyes yeah. on his hands. Holy oh, yeah. Cow. Yeah. But definitely agree with you there. The real world stuff is much more terrifying because mm. that guy is a psychopath. Yes, absolutely. So let's uh, let's get into some of the not tropes, maybe like the trademarks of some of this European horror that was coming out of the time, mm-hmm. at least to us in the States. Okay. Um, we had, a, of course, some notorious dubbing going on. It seemed like I don't know uh, what's your experience, Dave. Did you when you were first watching some of these films, did you find the dubbed versions. I know sometimes it's hard to find the original language film unless like Arrow or someone puts it out. I'm looking back on some of the ones that I've seen. I mean, on when, when it played on TV, it was always dubbed. Right. Right. You know, like if they were showing some of those older films on, um, for me, Dr. Shock, when I was in, in the seventies from, from 70, you know, all through the seventies, it was Dr. Shock was the horror host in, in, in uh, the Philadelphia area. And he would show, I mean, I, I remember seeing, you know, a lot of things like they every now and again, a Godzilla movie, or he would show, um, you know, the, the incredible two headed transplant or a movie like that. Um, but when he would show one of the foreign, even a Godzilla movie, it would be dubbed. Mm-hmm. That's yep. just what it was. They were not yep. going to have subtitles on Dr. Shock show in the 90s. Yes. You yep. just weren't going to do it. Yep. No, I remember distinctly the Godzilla films growing up and watching them on TV dubbed. So I didn't know there was terrible dubbing. It's terrible. Oh, yeah. Yep. And I bought um, not to get off again here on a tangent, but I had bought a Godzilla set for the Heisei era films and half of those are dubbed and half of them are subbed and you don't have an option. So, (laughs) yeah. So it's that, you know, that period from like, I think, 1984 or 89. I can't remember when they said which one started it, but it goes all the way up to the mid 2000s. And yeah, some of them are just at some point they just start going into subtitles, which 
I would rather have, but yeah, I'm telling you one of the ones that, that really shocked me, I had bought on DVD Mothra and it was one of those sort of, mm-hmm. you know, cheapo DVDs that I got. It was dubbed yep. and it was the American cut of the film yeah. watching it. It's like, Oh, it's a good movie. I always liked Mothra, but then I saw the Japanese version, the subtitled, it's a completely different movie. There's so much more in the yes. Japanese version of Mothra than what you get in the American version of Mothra that it, you can basically say it's like a different movie. You're watching a different film. It's almost like the, you know, the the original Superman 2 to the Richard Donner Superman 2. Those sort of differences between the Japanese cut of Mothra and the American cut of Mothra. It really is just a very different movie and it's a better movie the japanese is a better movie and it is it is subtitled uh but there's more to it yep. and the story makes more sense in yep. the japanese version absolutely and i i know growing um not growing up but when i was going through the horror movies and i was watching all these giallos they were almost always the ones that i could find were dubbed and mm-hmm. again some of them could benefit. I mean, there's some that aren't bad. Some of those Argento dubs aren't too terrible. You mm-hmm. can still tell something's off, but that's how I watched Deep Red and Suspiria and all those films oh, wow. the first time was dubbed. Well, that one's a little easier, especially Deep Red, because um, who was that? David Hemmings? Is that the star of that yeah. one? Yeah. I mean, he was doing his dialogue in English anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it's so it's so jarring where they record in whatever languages the actors are in. And then they go back in and have someone dub over them later. It's so, it's very strange. Yeah. You know, I'd, see Frederico Fellini never recorded dialogue live on this set. He would always, they would always be in post. They would put the dialogue in. Um, so he could shout direction at them as yeah. he was making the movie. Yeah. So th- that, that made it, I guess that made it a little bit more interesting, I guess, in the Federico yeah. Fellini <laughs> film. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, it's something like, what was it? Uh, the green slime that came out in the sixties It had Japanese, it had like four or five different nationalities working yeah. on that film. Everybody talking their own language. But that just seems like it would be, I don't know how you would direct that. I, I, don't, I don't know, know how, you'd how, either. Co- <laughs> how you'd be able to focus. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I don't know either. And I can't remember his name now, but that's the same guy who made battle Royale. Um, okay. Okay. Which is a, a Kinji. Kukasaki, is that who it is? I, I'd have to look that up. But um, the guy, same guy who made Battle Royale, did uh, the Green Slime. But yeah, you're right. That uh, to me, that would see that would be like a, a nightmare. It's almost like you know the biblical Tower of Babel, where nobody yeah. can understand <laughs> what anybody else is saying. You know. Uh, and it's so shocking to me that we haven't gotten any better because I know um, when I went to watch uh, Satan's Slaves for the first time, mm-hmm. um, it started playing in English, and I was like, "What is this?" And the dub was so bad. And I can't believe that we haven't gotten to a point where the dubs of these things, I would rather watch them in their original language, but the dubs have gotten better because we've got such a good industry of with like localization and voice acting for Mm -hmm. whatever type of shows. And we still haven't advanced any. I guess the demand for that's kind of went down too, though, right, Dave, because you can become a hit in America without having to speak English now. Oh yeah. Now it's yes. I mean, it has changed to a point. Um, yes. Uh, I'm looking at a movie. I don't think hero from 2002. I can't remember if that was dubbed or not. Uh, when it came to America, it might've been, I can't remember. Um, but hero was like a masterpiece. 
I mean, for me, that's just a masterpiece of um, that what was that. Uh, oh, God. Uh, Zhang Yimou directed that one. Have you seen a hero from 2002? I have not. If okay. we're thinking about the same movie that is on my list, I just okay, haven't yeah. got to it yet. Same guy who did House of Flying Daggers. Okay. And I, House of Flying Daggers is another masterpiece. I did see that one on the big screen subtitled. I know that one was not dubbed. I know that one was subtitled. And it's so funny because I remember sitting in a theater one time and uh, it was um, the uh, Beat Takashi uh, version of uh, the Beat, Beat Takashi uh, had put out Zatochi the Blind Swordsman in the early 2000s. And I remember sitting in a theater and it was in the summer. It was, or I don't know, it was in the summer. It was maybe early fall. I can't remember. But back, you know, kids jump theater to theater. Once they get mm-hmm. into the movie theater with one ticket, they'll go to theater to theater to watch movies. I just remember that there were about four or five kids that came walking into the theater right before the movie started. And as soon as it started and they saw the subtitles, they got up and walked out. <laughs> and Dave, that's telling, and I think that still exists today, even within the horror community to an extent. You hear even like when Joe Bob Briggs does stuff, um, seems like they get a lot of complaints when they show stuff with subtitles. And I don't get it because you're missing out on so much. Yeah. Even you the, are. Yeah. You really are. You really are. I mean, even even with modern horror, some great yeah. things coming out of of uh, of like we're talking about, you know, the wreck and troll hunt. Yeah. You Indonesia know, is yeah, and Indonesia, state, Brazil, state, Argentina, pretty much yeah, some great stuff out there that you're missing out on. Is like, oh, I don't want to read the movie. You really <laughs> don't miss that much. You just don't miss that much with the sub reading the subtitles. I don't think so anyway. No, I've never walked away from a movie, even a movie like Shin Godzilla, that is dialogue heavy. When Godzilla is attacking, no one's talking anyway. No. <laughs> so you get to see all of that. You might be missing some back and forths in the in the government meetings and, and <laughs> you know, the military uh, briefings Most in Shin Godzilla by reading them because people are talking a lot. But when Godzilla is attacking, everybody's shutting up anyway. Yeah. I, and I don't know if this is the same with you, Dave, but I catch myself sometimes all like – two thirds of the way through the film, I like kind of snap out of it for a minute. I'm like, wait, they're not speaking English. I, it just yeah. seemed like they were, you're reading and you're getting so invested in it. It's like, Oh, you I really feel are. like I'm yeah. right there with them anyway. You really are. I mean, it's, it's a shame. And I, you're, you're right. And I mean, there are the same th- group of people. There's a group of people who won't watch black and white movies. Oh uh, yeah. You know, they only want to see color. Um, not as many though. I mean, it's not, and not really in, in like, I guess our circle. You know, yeah. I think everybody sort of appreciates all kinds of movies. Um, but I've had plenty of like family members saying, oh, is this is a black and white. I don't want to watch a <laughs> black and white movie. It's like, really? You you don't want to see. OK, so so when it comes to Humphrey Bogart, we can see the K mutiny. We can see, you know, <laughs> we're a little bit limited here. You're going to be missing most of his greatest, uh, greatest stuff. Yep. Um, it's a shame, you know, uh, but there are, you know, people. I mean, my my family, they. They will not watch. They can't watch subtitles. They said, I can't read a movie. I can't do it. I don't want to see this. I want to, you know, is this in English? The one dubs that are being done now that I think are worthy are the or are strong are the um, what Disney is doing with Hayao Miyazaki's films. Mm -hmm. What they're doing subtitle with dubbing works well, because I think they I don't know if Miyazaki's involved with it, but I think he might be. Dave, I'll tell you. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. 
No, I was going to say, as a whole, um, as someone who watches anime pretty regularly, the dubbing and the voice acting has gotten really good. Yeah, Um, it has. It's sometimes you still get some bad ones, but yes, those Miyazaki movies are going to get top treatment because those are usually big event movies that everyone knows about. And they were I mean, those were being released as Disney movies back in the what 80s and 90s. Uh, uh, and the, into the 2000s. I mean, yeah. I took my kids to see Spirited Away in 2002. Yeah. It played for one week at my theater. And thank God I got them there to see it. And it was a two-hour movie. And it was PG because they said it had a few, like, maybe some scary <laughs> things in there for kids. But my kids were enthralled. They absolutely loved it. Two hours. They didn't. I don't think they, they sat in their seat. They didn't fall asleep. They didn't fidget. They didn't ask for popcorn or to go to the bathroom. They sat there the entire <laughs> two hours, which is amazing because most we can't go to a restaurant for 15 minutes without at that age, one of them having to go to the bathroom. But for two hours, they sat there glued to their seats watching that movie. Wow. Yeah. And that's the studio Ghibli is pretty much seen as the Japanese Disney. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can see why that partnership came out. And that's that's an awesome story. I can't even imagine at this point taking my two year old to go see a movie because she'd last about five minutes. But that that's something. It's that's, funny because both of my kids, my my uh, my oldest son, uh, his first movie was Bug a Bug's Life in '98, um, and my youngest son, his first movie was Shrek in 2001. Okay. So both of them, I think, were two years old. Okay. Yeah. See those movies. Dave, I'll tell you, my parents have always told me that they were taking me to see Aladdin in the movie theater, and they took me like six or seven times when I was two years old, and I would just be there quoting the movies. So. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So apparently, my love for movies was very early on. So. That's really cool. The the, <laughs> the first Disney movie I remember seeing as a kid, I think I was eight years old, um, animated, was uh, The Rescuers. That was first run because Disney would replay a lot of their films. I remember seeing Bambi on the big screen, but that was from back in the 40s. You know, that was just sort of re-released. And I got to see that. But as far as new Disney films, The Rescuers was the first animated one. But I'd seen some other like live action Disney. I saw, um, God, what was it? Uh, The World's Greatest Athlete. I think Jan Michael Vincent's in that one. And um, oh, that crappy Super Dad. Oh, my God. (laughs) I watched that again for the blog and I thought... What a piece of dreck this is, boy! That was awful, and I don't, I, I don't know, what, I don't know how I thought of it as a kid, but I, I hated it now, you know. So, but as far as with, with like Disney animation, you were, you know, you're talking about Aladdin. That was actually a good time. So when yeah. you were a kid, I mean, and Aladdin was, was that right before Lion King? That was right after, I think. Uh, right after like, Lion King. That okay. string of like Disney movies is one of their best animated periods. It is. I would say. They were other than they, like the thirties was... and forties, maybe. That was a new golden age for yeah. Disney animation, you know, yeah. and then they were putting out some of it started with the Little Mermaid in 89 and they were putting out some yeah. amazing stuff. Yeah. And I was um, obsessed. I do remember having the clamshell VHS for Nightmare Before Christmas, which isn't exactly animation, but it was Disney release, I believe. And uh, I it was it, Tim Burton. Yep. Tim Burton had put that out and Tim Burton used to, had worked for Disney early on before sort of going out on his own. Um, there's a really great day, documentary out there called Waking Sleeping Beauty that, oh, that delves into the, the, the Disney of around that time oh, and great. a little bit after it. It's a yeah, really good documentary because John Lasseter worked for Disney then. Tim Burton worked for Disney then. You had these you had a lot of sort of these, um, you know, wonderkins yeah. uh, working at Disney. And uh, that was part of what made it such a such a that's part of the reason why they were putting out such amazing movies. 
Yeah, well, they were in dire straits at that period about from all the 80s releases that just were bombing. And yeah, and, and, and it kind of started with even with the rescuers, I think, even though the yeah. rescuers made money, um, it just wasn't quite that level of what Disney had been doing early on. I mean, um, you know, after Walt Disney died, I think the last movie that Walt Disney was alive for and oversaw was The Jungle Book. Oh, and yeah, I think I think that's the 60s. I'm pretty sure that's the 60s. Yeah, well, they were kind of moving out of that, basing their stories on fairy tales and books yeah. and things like that and moving into new stuff with, like you said, the Rescuers. They did, like, the Black Cauldron yep. in the 80s. Um, Fox but, and the Hound was a later oh, one. Oh, yes. I don't know if it was like the 80s. One. Yeah. I do, too. I like it, too. The the, the Robin Hood that they put uh, out was a little yep. bit of a later one as uh, as well. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know, but glad they turned things around there for yeah. the animation studio, at least. They definitely did. They definitely did. Um, okay, so we covered dubbing. Uh, there were also a lot of extensive cuts and title changes, of course. Um, Dave, do you have any uh, favorite titles you can think of that were changed for the U.S. audience? Or Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, I'll tell you, I can think of a couple that... Um, okay, yeah, you go ahead. You go yeah, ahead. so we already talked about Eyes Without a Face. That was released here, and I believe it had a decent amount of cuts, and it was released as the Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus, I think. And I'll check that right now while I'm talking, but there was also uh, Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, which came out as The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, which I yes. love those titles. I think both mm-hmm. are amazing. Yep. So. I think both of them are good. What was it? I know that um, this is getting a little bit later. It's into a period where you weren't really sure if you wanted to go. It's 1981. Fulci's, um, The House by the Cemetery. Wasn't that released as Seven Doors of Death or something like that? I'm not sure. I, I don't are know. Are you thinking about the psychic that was like the seven notes of death or something like that? Maybe Maybe. Not. Maybe, maybe, maybe it might have been, but I'm almost positive, and I'm looking it up now, but I'm almost positive that The House by the Cemetery was also released as... Um, yes, that was US. the... Eyes Without a Face was the Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. I thought that was... Okay, cool, okay. I'm just looking at it now. Now maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong because I see that um, it was just a zombie hell house in US. Okay. This is according to IMDb. So I yeah. might be wrong about that. I know um, the psychic um, was released, I think, as the psychic in the US, but in Italy it had one of those more traditional giallo names. I think it was like okay. the seven black notes or something like that in Italian. Was it City of the Living Dead? I don't know. I don't think it was the Beyond, but it might have been the Beyond that had a um, that had a different title. And it's so it's very interesting how that how they would do that. I mean, even with exploitation back in the yeah. in the seventies, they would release it under one title in one city. Um, if it didn't do good or if it wasn't well received, they would just change the title and take it to the next city. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, no, um, no, there's definitely they, stories they, of that. They would just change it city to city, and it depend on how <laughs> it was doing. You know, I remember Switchblade Sisters was originally called Jezebel. Oh, wow. um, and it wasn't doing anything or the Jezebels, which was the name of the girl gang in Switchblade Sisters. It wasn't doing anything. Um, so they changed it to Switchblade Sisters, um, you know, and it started to start to actually pick up a little bit in business once they did that. Um, but I'm trying to I'm looking up City of the Living Dead now. It might I don't know. Was it the Beyond? Maybe I'm thinking of the Beyond where they had. The yeah, look, up, I'm looking at City of the Living Dead. So look up the Beyond. I know what I'm pretty sure one of them was Seven Doors or. Maybe it is. Maybe it's the psychic I'm thinking of. That's very possible. Yeah, because be- City of the Living Dead was the gates of hell. Maybe it's the beyond. Maybe it's the beyond that Let was me, uh, uh, looking up right now. And I know this is making for 
great podcasting here, but <laughs> I, you've got to know now, Dave. You open the box. Uh, now I do. Yes, now I open yes, it, up. it was the Beyond. It's Seven it, Doors of Death. Okay, all right. I see. I didn't think it was the Beyond for some reason. I was thinking it was House by the Cemetery, but okay, all right. Yeah, I knew there was one of them that actually was released on video as that uh, as the Seven Doors. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. I just no, no, that's fine. No problem. That's all kind of part of the part of the game, really, at that point with the European films coming over. And a lot of countries were shooting these films specifically for U.S. releases because they know mm-hmm. they would do well. Dave, I wanted to bring up to you. Have you um, seen this is kind of a good jumping off point if someone wants to get into this stuff? Um, I'm sure for a lot of horror fans, this won't be anything new. But have you ever watched the BBC series that Mark Gaddis did? Um, it was called A History of Horror. No, I have not seen that. So he did a three-part series, which was called A History of Horror. I think in the first one, he went into those old Hollywood horror movies. And then he went into Hammer stuff in the second. And I can't remember. He must have went into, I'm sure he had to go into the 70s and 80s in the third one. But I haven't seen it in so long. But he did a special episode called Horror Europa, where mm-hmm. he went into France and Spain and all these different countries and highlighted several horror films. And some of them are more mainstream. Some of them are a little more hidden gems. But I've always enjoyed watching that. I think it's about an hour and a half. Um, but it's pretty good. It even shows him. I think at one point he's going through Profondo Rosso over in Italy. Um, Ooh. Dario Argento's uh, memorabilia. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, the memorabilia play. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. I I saw that. Um. Uh, oh God, who was it? Um. Kagan Breitenbach had gone over to Italy and actually visited that place. Oh, that's awesome. That is really cool, and they got a lot of great stuff in there. My favorite thing though that I saw was the rhino head from uh, Federico Fellini's in the ship sails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, for some reason, that just film. impressed me. I thought that was so awesome seeing <laughs> that among all of the other memorabilia there. Oh, I was always under the impression that it was just Argento stuff. Um, no, it, it, there, that, that, that rhino head is in there. At least it yeah, was that's a what couple I was years as he ago. was going through. Yeah. I think I saw some stuff that Baba had, some pieces of Baba the movies. Nice. So yeah, that was that's very cool. We're talking about it now, Dave. Um, that Italian Gothic horror that kind of rose in the late, not as much late fifties, probably sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, anything stand out for you there? Any films you can. Oh yeah. Um, Baba's black Sunday. Yep. Absolutely. Is probably the one I think of first. Yep. Um, and then I think it's Antonio Margariti that did castle of blood. Yes. I just watched that. Yep. Would it fit in with your Barbara Steele? Is that, isn't that the one where Edgar Allan Poe is a character at the beginning? Yes. I think castle yes. of blood had Edgar yep. Allan Poe as a character in that. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was really cool. But once they get to that house, I mean, oh, yeah. that's a creepy movie. Oh, absolutely. And I had a terrible transfer. I had paid to rent it and it was still a bad transfer. <laughs> but yes, I really liked the atmosphere they built in that movie. Yeah, they, they did a great job. They really did. Those are the two that actually leap to mind. And there are a lot more. Yeah. You know, and especially I when you're talking that. Italy, you know, at that time period. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of and you mentioned Black Sunday, which I love. Let's see. I just watched recently An Angel for Satan. Um, I don't know if you've seen that one. With Barbara no, I have, well. no, I have not. No. Yeah, it's kind of I love Barbara Steele's performance in it. It's one of her best performances, I think. Um, she's playing kind of two different characters, Dave. Um, she is I think she's off to school or something, and she comes back to her uncle's estate to kind of take over her inheritance. And we get a guy at the same time coming to fix this statue 
and kind of restore the statue, which we've seen over and over again in Italian movies, restoring some kind right. of art. And this statue has this history about it. So like the townspeople are really kind of at odds with this sculptor. They think bad things are going to happen. And at one point, um, Barbara Steele, it seems like she's almost possessed by this ghost from the past who had died in a tragic way around that statue. And so she's kind of switching back and forth between this very likable character of this young, um, I think like college age type girl. And it's set back in, I can't remember the time period, but it's definitely in that Gothic style. Um, And she's switching between that and this kind of like dominatrix who hates men on the other side with this so-called possessed personality. So I really liked the back and forth that Barbara Steele did in that one. It's very funny that she plays two characters because she also plays two characters in Black Sunday. Yes. That seemed to become like a, it's, it's like every, it's like all of the Italian uh, Gothic horror films in the, in that time period had to have Barbara Steele. Yes. And I think in half of them, she was playing two characters. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Absolutely. Um, Also pretty disturbing, but the horrible Dr. Hitchcock as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, yeah, I think I know I've seen a number of them. I'm trying, I I love the early sixties. Um, I mean, I, with Italian horror, I mean, it, it extends back to, you know, we're saying with Bava, Mm -hmm. obviously, then it goes into the seventies with Argento. And when you get into the Jallos, um, and then into the eighties, it's, it's with, um, with Fulci and, um, uh, a lot of others, you know, that like, but it's almost like each decade had its, its star director for me yeah anyway and there were a lot of other great movies released by other filmmakers but it was like the 60s were bava the 70s were argento and then when Mm -hmm. you got to the 80s it was fulci and there was bleed over you know with it because i know that argento put out phenomenon 86 which i'm actually a big fan i actually really like phenomenon Phenomenon. yes yeah that's a good one and fulci was working in the 70s as well i mean zombie is 79 and even bob is one of my favorite the psychic is actually yes yeah and um yeah, and City of the Living Dead is my favorite out of that Gates of Hell trilogy, too. Really? See, for the yeah. Beyond for me, I love the Beyond because it is, a like I've called it before, a kitchen sink horror movie. It's got everything. It is. It it's is. got zombies. It's got it's got demons. It's got um, tarantulas. It's got whatever you're looking for. And, it's, and a trip to hell. <laughs> <laughs> that tarantula scene, Dave, I tell you, that was my first Fulci film. And... I was standing there and I was eating breakfast at the time I was watching that tarantula scene and I just almost <laughs> oh, lost it. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> but, you know, it's got that Louisiana setting. So that's pretty cool. Yep. That Bayou type setting. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I love it. That's my that's actually one of my favorite uh, horror movies is the beyond. I think it's just I, I love it. Um, that and Zombie are probably my two favorite Fulci films. And I like a lot. I like all of the Gates of Hell trilogy. I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like them all. Uh, but the beyond is is my favorite. Absolutely. Um, another one I had here, Dave, I don't know if you had heard of this one. It was called The Mill of Stone Women. It was released in 1960. No. So this is very interesting. I've, this is another one. I'm kind of using this episode to clear my list, a lot of my list um, of these cool. European horror films I haven't seen. <laughs> and this is cool. It's um, a guy goes to write a story about this sculptor who has this mill and it's constantly turning these sculptures of these women in these kind of horrifying positions. And he kind of um, has this romantic entanglement with a couple of women in this film, the guy writing the story. And we get some, it's very, I love the setting of it. I guess I want to say 
setting is so cool and that mill is so cool and everything that goes on there. And Mm -hmm. I do like the characters. It gets a little bit to where you don't know what is real and what isn't real at some point. And they fooled me because I thought it wasn't real or (laughs) whatever. But yeah, it's a pretty cool film, especially for being 1960, especially for coming out back then. That's awesome. Yeah. So we, I mean, we could sit here and talk about Italian horror films. I feel like all day, but I think we, I think you could do a three parter just on Italian oh, yeah. cinema from this time period. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, Italy was I think at some point, right, Dave? They're kind of with these gothic films, which they were very close to Hammer, but they're probably playing off like the past of those gothic films uh, with the spaghetti mm-hmm. westerns. They're kind of taking cues from. Hollywood westerns there, but kind right. of doing it better in some regards. It's in some, some in some way, especially Sergio Leone. Yes, Sergio Leone was doing uh, it better um, than a lot of uh, what you had seen. You know, I, I don't want to say earlier. I love the early westerns of John Ford yes. and and uh, you know Bud Bedecker and a lot of those guys. I love those early fifties and all westerns. But what Leone was doing, it was just it was it was grittier. Yes. You know, it yeah. was it, it was it was just it was it, it was a harsh, you know, it, there was a roughness to it um, that you didn't always get. Sometimes you got it yes. in the in the 40s, 50s and whatnot. But most of the time, not. That's right. where the spaghetti Westerns went. Yeah. Um, and and even Django in 66, which is just <laughs> a great film. It really is just an amazing movie. The original Django. Um, and all of the movies have followed. I think Django Prepare a Coffin might have been the only official sequel. And that one starred uh, Terrence Hill uh, as as Django. Or it was a prequel. I think it was a prequel to the original Django. Uh, but Franco Nero couldn't come back for it. All of the other Django's. I mean, there were probably 30 movies named Django right up until Quentin Tarantino's, you know, Django Unchained. Right. Um, yeah. that, that just were not official. The official sequel or didn't have anything to do with the original Django. But that's another one that's just a roughness. I mean, there's a scene that you that I think at least in part inspired Tarantino's in Reservoir Dogs. Uh the scene with Michael Madsen and the cop. And that just that even though you don't see the violence, you you just you cringe at that moment. Well there's a scene like that in Django involving an ear. Um <laughs> You know, so it, it's those movies. There was a violence to them. There was there was an edge to them. You yeah. know, I mean, that 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 you didn't always get in the uh, Westerns of uh, of Hollywood, the Hollywood Westerns. Right. The Hollywood Westerns, for the most part, at least early on, were very kind of upbeat and had the happy endings and everything. They, I remember watching did, the John yeah. Wayne films. and Yeah, but now John Wayne's The Searchers was a little different. So yes. The Searchers had a dark edge to it. That yeah. was a later John Ford film. Right. Um, but again, that was sort of a little bit outside the norm for what Hollywood was doing. And then, but, but Bettiger's films had a, had a bit of an edge too. Right. They could, but you know, a, a lot of what Hollywood was turning out as far as with Westerns. No, they weren't. They, they it's yeah. almost like they were a little afraid. To, to go down those roads, you know, whereas, yeah. whereas Leone was running head first, you know, he was like, yeah. not running, but he was running as fast as he could down those roads. Yeah. You're not going to lose any sleep over the Comancheros, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that when we get to the Giallo, I think that's really, I, I know it's borrowing from those old paperbacks of before in the yep. 20th century. And you're borrowing from some German films who had, adapted those paperbacks as well but that's really truly what it turned into i think a wholly italian genre oh, that yeah. 
influenced everyone after there. I mean, I don't know if we have slashers. I don't know if we have um, Black Christmas seems very Giallo-esque to me. Um, yes. I don't know if we have Halloween without Giallos. I don't know. I don't know, Dave. I, I don't know that you do. I, I definitely think that, you know, the Giallos were sort of the precursor for the slashers. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, you had obviously Bava doing things in the 60s. But what really put the Giallo on the map was... Um, uh, bird with a bird with crystal plumage, right? You know, Dario yeah. Argento's. It's almost like with Black Christmas and Halloween. Black Christmas was before Halloween, right? It had a lot of the same tropes as Halloween. The POV shots, you know, the the, the killer, the you know, stalking these these girls. Um, but Halloween was a box office smash, and it yes. was so that's the one that was one that launched all of the slashers to follow. Yep. It's the same with Bird with Crystal Plumage. I know that yeah. Bava was doing things in the 60s, but Bird with Crystal Plumage is what started Jallo in and that it was in 1970. Yep. Um and even 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 Argento followed it up with The Cat of Nine Tales, which is a very underrated film. Yes, it is. A very yep. underrated film. I, I think I love The Cat of Nine Tales. I do too. I still think Bird with Crystal Plumage is a better movie, but The Cat of Nine Tales is so damn entertaining. It's like, I've always been told, you know, I was like, oh, it's not, you know, it's just sort of a step down from from birth. But it's not a big step down. Yeah, isn't it anything, though? Even if it is a step down, (laughs) even if it is a step down, it's not a big step down. Yeah, and along those same lines, I think one underrated Bava film, you know, he had, of course, um, Twitch of the Death Nerve or Bay of Blood, Mm -hmm. um, and then had Blood and Black Lace, which those two get all the talk. But the girl who knew too much or the evil eye, with uh, John Saxon in it from Mm -hmm. 63, I believe. I love that film, and I think that's a great blending of kind of noir and still those early giallo tropes in there. Nice. It's been a very long time since I've seen that, to be honest with you. I can't really, I don't, I I can't really comment on that. But actually, they just put out a Blu-ray of that, Um, and I think it was part of the Mario Baba collection. Yes, I've if got I'm not that mistaken one. with yep. the uh, with that Kino. I think it's Kino. Yes, who Kino put those out. Yep. Yes, Kino Lorber put those out. I have a lot of those Blu-rays and that's one of them. Um, yeah, so I will have to watch it again, which you got to be careful with those. I know that um, that one in particular has both the American version and the international version. It has both. It has the man who. Knew yeah, the man. who. Yes. And it has um, evil eye. Yes. Yes. But when I was rewatching Black Sunday, that only has the English version on it. And it's the same with Shudder as well when I went on there because I was like, well, let me check Shudder and see if they have. So that might I don't know really? if we've had a release of Black Sunday. Yeah, it was titled The Mask of Satan um, um, on both Shudder and on my Kino Lorber Blu-ray. So uh, and I have that same Blu-ray. Damn, yeah. that's a shame. Yeah, I was so disappointed. <laughs> Yeah. And I've got a lot of those Kino Lorber Bava collection films. So I'm like, I know for sure Evil Eye has both versions on there. Mm-hmm. But and it's the same that I think it's Kino who puts out the Redemption label, which is uh, or the uh, you know, Redemption is is sort of an offshoot of Kino Lorber, just like Magnet is okay. an offshoot of Magnolia. Yeah. Um, and Redemption is the one that does um, they do a lot of the British horror, but they also do a genre land. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot of the genre land films. Do you want to go ahead and uh, talk about Jean Roulin while we're here, Dave? And yeah, jump absolutely. into kind of France? Absolutely. Because uh, Jean Roulin, and he was one of the ones mentioned in that book that I was uh, that I told you about. I have this book um, that I was sort of relying on for this episode uh, called Immoral Tales. Um, I got it years ago by Cathal Toehill and Pete Toombs. And it's, it's just European sex and horror movies, 1956, 1984. 
Uh, and Jean Roland is one of the ones who's mentioned that it's very interesting because it's, it's definitely low budget. You know, um, he, he doesn't, he didn't get a lot of money to make these movies, but what he did, what Jean Roland was able to do is he, he sort of walked the line between art house and horror and art house and exploitation. I should say not horror. They're horror films. He walked the line between art house and exploitation in these movies. They had nudity. Um, they had the female vampires. Um, you, know, had, you, had, you had the lesbian vampires in some of the movies. But he was able to capture, he shot in different locations all the time. He was able to sort of capture the feel of those locations. And I'm thinking of Fascination was this big house that he was shooting in. The Grapes of Death was this village. God, what was the one? Um, the Iron Rose, he shot in a cemetery, for God's sakes. <laughs> he was able to bring a feel of location to these movies that it's like, it's like that, that these movies had to be set. You know, it's like, it's like, it was important that they were set in those locations where he set them. Oh, what was the one, uh, the demoniacs was it? I think by the sea, I, I think it was that one that took place by the sea. It was just, it was amazing. It was amazing how he could bring uh, such an atmosphere to the locations and it was like they were all sort of in different locales he always went back to this one beach he'd always have scenes in this one beach and i think he grew up going to that beach so he'd always go back there and insert scenes like that into some of these movies he might have even done that with the iron rose if i'm not mistaken uh, that took place in the cemetery but that was what i got get from jean roland have you seen any jean roland movies no dave i was gonna okay. ask you i'm not familiar at all i think you did in maybe a little piece of HMP a while, a long time ago mm -hmm. um, with some genre lens stuff. Where would I you think start? I Where would you start if you're starting with genre lens? What would you well, recommend? My favorite genre lens film is the grapes of death. Okay. Which is like a zombie film. I would start there is okay. the one I would start with. And I'm also a fan of the iron rose, which is, I think the one that I think that's the one that was set in the cemetery. I'm pretty sure that's the one that was set in the cemetery. Those two would be, I think a great starting point. And then uh, fascination is okay. a very interesting movie as well. Though th those would be, if I were to pick three, I'd say those would be the three to start with. Um, a okay. lot of his earlier ones, some of the vampire ones early on are a little dry. Okay. You know, now like, uh, uh, um, I'm, trying to think of some titles here i'm not none of sleeping or leaping to mind but um um anyway go ahead what were you going to say no i was going to say now are these kind of some of those um i think i have this picture of genre Lynn. are these kind of some of those more sleazier type european films like we'd see with maybe something like daughters of dark not not necessarily like really sleazy but you, you know mean, what I'm like saying? vampires from england yeah because yeah, yeah. you're yeah. talking about like vampire lesbians and things and i yeah I, there's there's nudity there's definitely mm -hmm. nudity and um Oh, is it Bridget LaHaye? I think it might be. It appeared in several of these movies. I, I picture in Fascination, um, swinging that scythe, uh, and I think that's the actress's name. And she gets naked in a lot, a lot of these movies <laughs> as well. So there's nudity. Yeah, and when I say that, I'm not using that as like a derogatory statement no, because no, no, I actually I love some of those sleazy movies that are coming out of Europe, and a lot of them are coming out of Europe yes. at this time because they have no. Yes boundaries they're just doing whatever they want and they're making the movies they want to make so yes nothing I, negative on that when i mentioned i will say one movie to maybe possibly avoid um and don't make it your first genre land film is zombie lake okay because zombie lake is when he stepped into direct it was going to be jess franco it was going uh, to be a okay. Jess Franco movie. Jess Franco couldn't make it, so Jean Roland stepped in. It is not a Jean Roland film. It's not okay. one that you would say if you see Zombie Lake, you haven't really seen a Jean Roland film. Okay, I will stay away from that one. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> that, Dave, because I don't. 
like I said, I don't have, I've definitely seen that poster for fascination. Um, mm-hmm. and I've heard a little bit about genre Lynn, but I don't have any experience with him as a filmmaker. Uh, those. Okay. Well then those would definitely be the best places to start. And he has other good movies as well. Uh, the living dead girl is a good one. Oh God. There was one of those vampire movies. I'm trying to remember. Was it two, two, two orphan vampire? I can't remember what it is now. Oh boy. Uh, it, it has these twins in it, uh, and has some very interesting scenes in it as well. Um, God, I hate, I hate starting a thought and I can't finish it because I can't <laughs> remember the damn name of the movie is two orphan vampires. Is that actually a title? It is, but it's, okay. well, it says here from 1997, that would not be, no, that wouldn't be it. <laughs> that would not be genre land. Um, I, I can't remember what it is. There are some of those vampire movies that are not bad, okay. uh, but for me, definitely Grapes of Death. If you had to pick one, I would go with Grapes of Death um, and follow closely by uh, by the by the Iron Rose because okay. I think the Iron Rose is such an interesting film because, like I said, it takes place entirely in a cemetery at night. Oh wow, that's that's got me going right there. I mean, that would that's selling. It is, me. it is, so. it's, and it's a very it's a very interesting. It's just a very interesting film. Awesome. Uh, and that would be that would be second. And then if you're going to throw a third in there, definitely fascination. OK. Yeah. And I think that's helpful because there's probably a lot of people like me out there that have not seen a genre lone film. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Yep. I think um, overall, this early French horror is kind of a little maybe under the radar, mm-hmm. um, especially compared to the extreme French films that come out later in the aughts, which are very well known. Yes. And very well no, respected. And- well, we're well respected and very and for a good reason. Oh, yes. I mean, you get something yep. like Inside yep. and, and my Martyrs. Yes. Uh, High Tension. All of those films. Yes, they're extreme. But, you know, and, and even going into what like what what Gaspar Noe is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I cannot watch Irreversible again. I can't do it. <laughs> I just cannot. And it's a it's a well-made film. It really is. But there are just two sequences. And I think if you've seen Irreversible, you know what I'm talking about. One at the very beginning and then one that takes place in that sort of tunnel. Um, uh, it's just it's very it's a very difficult movie to sit through. Irreversible. Yeah. But but I, yet I loved Climax. I could watch Climax <laughs> anytime. And that's another one that's very disturbing. And, and it, it really like some people can't watch Climax. I don't have a problem watching that one again. I just can't go back to Irreversible. Dave, I was going to say the same thing as. I feel like I could watch Inside like every other day of the week yeah. <laughs> because I just yeah. love Inside. But Martyrs, I don't know if I really want to touch that one again. Martyrs a is a tough one. That's uh, Bill uh, Bill the Butcher, my co-host over in Land of the Creeps. That is one of his all-time favorite movies, and it is extreme. Martyrs is one of those ones that you just sort of feel – it's like you've been beaten around <laughs> <laughs> by the time it's over and you're exhausted. You know, Dave, by the time Martyrs is over. I'll tell you, and I think uh, it might have been Jay of the Dead that had said something about a little light went out in his soul or some kind of line when like that. About Martyrs, these, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the thing was, is I stayed away from those extreme films for so long because they had this reputation. I was like, I can't handle this. And I'm thinking, I'm like, well, I've watched some pretty messed up stuff. I bet I could handle this. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, they're pretty they're pretty rough movies, but they're not um, they are good films. I mean, yeah, for sure. They are. And like inside is a masterpiece. It really is. That's a that's a one probably the best when I think of for me, that's the best yep, of the same. extreme French uh, 
horror films of of the aughts. Yep. Uh, High Tension's a good one too. Yep. But Inside for me is where, and there's one called Frontiers. That's that's yes, pretty good as I, well. I haven't seen Frontiers, but I know of Frontiers. And it, that's a good one as well. Martyrs is just one that I I it's a I like it, and I can see why Bill is it's is such a big fan of it. I do. I really think Martyrs is. I can't say anything bad about the craft that went into making the movie. It's just so it's just relentless. Yeah. And it, it gets it's relentless in what it's hitting you with, um, you know, until you get to that scene of the girl just hanging there. And you're just oh. like, wow, by that point, <laughs> it by takes that a point, turn, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. And you're just sort of beaten. You're beaten down. Yeah. And it doesn't <laughs> get any better from there either. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like that little play at the end, the thing that happens, but it's not it's not that happy of <laughs> no, no, nobody goes into these French movies uh, to, to walk like at least these extreme French horror films to walk out with a smile on their face. It's just not yeah. going to happen, you know? No, no. Yeah. And and Dave, I think they were pushing the boundaries even back when they were starting. Um, I don't know. Have you seen um, Diabolique? Yes. From 55. Whoa. Yes, yes. Yes. That uh, Henri-Georges Clouzet, Clouzet, I think it was, who directed mm-hmm. that one. Man, does that you know what? It's it's funny because the, the story goes that Alfred Hitchcock wanted to make that. Yes. Lost yeah. out on the rights like within by hours. Yes. He yep. lost out on the rights and then eventually just made Psycho. Yes. Um, you know, a little bit later. But Diabolique, boy, that is a, the tension generated throughout that film with mm-hmm. what's going on until you get to that scene at the end. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't no. seen it because I recommend checking out Diabolique. But it's another one where, you know, uh, Hitchcock had threatened people um, when they, like the first audience, it's all psycho. He threatened them with bodily harm if they revealed any of the secrets. <laughs> yes. Any of the, uh, any of the, um, uh, any audience member coming in for the second showing or whatever, you know, for yeah. anybody going yeah. forward, he didn't want to spoil and you weren't it. allowed to come in after a certain time. Exactly. Like a, it, you couldn't come in after a certain time. With Diabolique, the, the same approach should have been taken. By Henri yes. Georges Clouseau, because yep. that's another one that relies on that surprise yes. at the end of it. And first time I saw Psycho, I kind of knew what was coming because mm-hmm. once the first audience walks out, spoilers <laughs> are going to get out. Even in the pre-internet days, for some somehow everybody knew the ending of Psycho. <laughs> um, other than that initial audience, or maybe the first couple of audiences, it just got out at that point. And then for there was somebody who'd walk into the theater who knew what was something, at least something of what was going to happen. Right. Diabolique, I went in cold, knew nothing about it, and boy, did that ending work for me. Holy yeah. cow. That was yeah. that was like it it was <laughs> it was amazing. It was just amazing. Yes. Yeah, well said, Dave. I don't know if I have any more to really add on there. I think you did it justice. Um it's funny you're talking about um Hitchcock wanted the rights to adapt that novel yep. Yep. for Diabolique. And he actually worked with those same two authors, and I'm blanking on their names, but to do Vertigo. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he missed out on doing the book that was would become Diabolique, but he did get a book and based Vertigo on it. Wow. That's something I'm actually looking up Diabolique now. I want to see the author's names. Pierre Boule, uh, Boileau and Thomas uh, Narcissac. I don't know if I'm pronouncing I, I even <laughs> took three years of France and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing those correctly. Yeah. Yep. That sounds right. And that's in uh, one word of warning. I did recommend that Mark Gaddis Euro horror uh, documentary mm-hmm. 
he does he gives away the that ending of this movie so oh, if you boy, hear him talking yeah. about diabolique maybe skip forward a little bit or watch the Diabolique <laughs> maybe before checking that out yeah because there's a couple he doesn't usually give away the main ending as he's talking about these films mm-hmm. um but he does give away some of the stuff as it's going through so oh. that's just a little warning there but that's where i had heard the fact about hitchcock with the novels wow that's awesome that's yep. really cool yep and Dave, we mentioned it at the beginning of this. Are you familiar with the Eyes Without a Face? Uh, again, it's been a very long it's time. It's been so long. Yeah. yeah. But it's just, a, it, it is a yeah, strong film. It's a strong movie. Yeah, I just rewatched it. And the fact that they just, it's just very unflinching for the mm-hmm. time, especially. And it is in black and white, even though it's, I believe, 1960. You know, we're still at that period where we're switching over. Mm-hmm. But the scene where... And to set it up a little bit, it's a girl who has been in an accident and has been horribly disfigured and she has to wear this mask around her house. And her father is doing all these experiment surgeries on women to try to give her a facelift and face transplant, apparently, Mm -hmm. essentially. Right. And let me tell you, when they have that scene in the operating room, they don't cut away from any of that. And it's just this very tense moment where it's like five to ten minutes of just kind of silence other than the sounds that are going on in the room. And it's very unsettling, especially even they even show you the face of the um, disfigured character in this film. That's that's that I remember that I remember (laughs) another pretty bleak ending, though. There's not a lot of happiness going on in that. That's that's what you get. And it's it's funny because when um, uh, what was the movie that um, there was there was a version from it was I don't know if it was from Sweden or Norway and Christopher Nolan remade it with oh god it had robin williams and al pacino in it what was the name of that movie damn it i hate like again i I hate starting things that i I, that i can't finish um but there was an initial version of that oh it's a one word title too and it's like probably the easiest damn title in the world i'm looking up (laughs) i'm looking it up now um and he it was uh nolan remade it insomnia okay yeah yeah insomnia there was a late 90s version of insomnia that and I want to say I don't know like I said I don't know if it's um, if it's Swedish I'm looking for connections now with uh, with the 2002 version 1997 uh, it was is a remake of and it uh, Norway I guess it's it, it's from Norway and it, it starred uh, Stellan Skarsgård mm-hmm. and it's you know sort of following the same story but that version I saw that before the other Insomnia. Before seeing the the other uh, the the remake, Christopher Nolan's remake of Insomnia, which is a strong movie, I saw that in the theater. Um, but I had actually seen this one, the Criterion. It was an early release for them, this 90, 1997 Insomnia, and it ends. It doesn't have. It's a darker movie. And when I was in the theater watching the new Insomnia, I'm like, they're not going to end it the same way. They just they're just not going to. They just don't. They they don't do that in these um, uh, sort of mainstream when you got Al Pacino and Robin Williams right. in these movies. It's not going to have that dark ending. And it didn't. Yeah. You know, as much as I admired Christopher Nolan's insomnia, anybody who, who has seen Christopher Nolan's insomnia, and it's a good movie. It's a damn good movie. Go back and watch the original 1997 insomnia mm-hmm. and you'll see how that movie originally ended. 
okay, because it, they don't, it's not as dark. They don't yeah. go into the darkness in the Christopher Nolan version as much, not not nearly as much as they do in the 97 version of Insomnia. Yeah, that, that was the name of the game around that time, right, Dave, with not only remaking older movies from the 70s, 80s, 60s, um, but remaking international films. We've, yes. You know, the Ring, I know I Within saw The years. Ring before I saw yes. Ringu. And um, I loved, now The Ring I loved. Yes, I think it's a, I think that's great. I think Let Me In is decent. It's not going to stand up to Let it's the Right One In. It's not going to really stand up to Let the Right One In, no. Um, but it is good. It's yeah. a, that is a good remake because they do some interesting things in it. They do in, yes. new things and interesting things in that one, uh, in in um, Let Me In. So yes. I'm with you on that one. I think that's a good movie as well. I Let the Right One In, though, is, is always, it's it's a masterpiece. Yeah, I think, and I think. You know, I think I saw quarantine not too long after wreck and mm -hmm. that's pretty much shot for shot. That's yeah. Why are you making this? Is pretty much right. It's, it's, it's almost like Gus Van Sant's psycho. Yeah. You know, okay. Well you have one scene where you have Norman masturbating. Okay. But you know, <laughs> and I think, you know, it was sort of alluded to maybe in 60 without Hitchcock actually showing it. Yeah. Um, you know, that was another one. It's like, well, why does this exist? And I know Wolfman Josh will fight me on that one because he's actually a fan of Gus Van Sant's Psycho, which I just can't get behind. But, you know. No, but that's a that's just a good point is like it seems like they're always willing to go further in these other areas. I mean, if yeah. you listen to um, Retro Movie Geek and listen to Peter talk about the change, the differences between the releases that he got mm -hmm. over in Europe and the releases that came to the U.S., yeah. they weren't as afraid of certain things as the U.S. was and still is in some ways today. And it's a shame. And it, it, it and it's it all, you know it comes down to well you know a lot of it just just comes down to the trying to predict how the audience is going to react to something. Right. Um, you know, with test audiences. And so, you know what, I, I, I'm not a big fan of that whole test audiences thing because they take it out to the center of the country. Yeah. You know, because if, if, if they followed test audiences, Goodfellas might have never got released because I think the initial test audience for Scorsese's Goodfellas, half the audience walked out. It was somewhere <laughs> in the Midwest that they were premiering it. Uh, it's not a Midwest movie. And half the audience walked out of Goodfellas. You know, that that initial test audience. So why uh, the test audiences, you know, I, I just I don't know. I think they're passe. I, I don't you know. Uh, and in the old days, it was the studio chiefs guessing, thinking they knew what the audiences. Wanted. Yes. You know, even after they lost touch. And that's what happened in the late 60s. That's why it all collapsed, because they still thought they wanted they still thought they wanted Hello, Dolly and paint your wagon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I can't I can't remember, Dave. Um, There was a story and I can't remember what movie it was. There was something where a studio said they couldn't come to terms on like the ending of the film. And they were like, okay, well, we'll go show them our ending here. Oh, maybe it was something with like the paranormal activity movies because I'd watched a documentary on that recently. I think that's what it is. Okay. Um, and they said, okay, well, we'll show our ending to them. And then a couple weeks later, we'll show your ending and we'll see which one sticks. Well, the studio, of course, flew these people in and gave them the star treatment and yeah. got everyone all excited and then when they went to show the filmmakers cut, they kind of just threw people in there and put them in the worst possible situation yeah. just so they could win out in the test screen. Exactly. So. And that's the, and that's the problem. They Yeah, they were going to get what they were wanted to get anyway. I didn't know that story about paranormal activity. I don't think it was but, the original. I think it was one of the later ones. One of uh, the later ones. OK. Yeah. Maybe it was um, the ghost dimension. It was one of the bad ones. Um, I think it was the ghost dimension. OK. Which I hadn't seen anyway. So. Right. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that one either, to be honest with you. Wasn't that yeah. Jason Blum? 
Uh, Jason Blum was producing it, yes. I don't think it was him that was making the decision. I think it was another executive at Paramount. Okay. Oh, at Paramount. Uh, okay. And the oh. filmmakers in that were the filmmakers behind Catfish. And they had also done maybe three. I don't know. It's get, it's all running together with those Paranormal Activity movies. Right, but it was right. definitely those filmmakers. And they were having the back and forth with Paramount, I believe. Wow. Yeah, and it's it, it's... It's just that that's that's, you know, time and again, that's what happens with with uh, with studios, uh, even going back to the uh, back to the old days. I mean, you know, it, it's it once the directors took over in the, it was the age of the sort of directors in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, especially early 70s mm-hmm. is when you had Scorsese coming up and, and Francis Ford Coppola. Yep. And that's when the directors were taking over. But unfortunately, that didn't last too long. Because then what happened was, you know, then it got into the later 70s and you had Star Wars and Jaws. So yeah. it's like, OK, now we know what we need to make money. Because that's <laughs> we when need a blockbuster. We need blockbusters. We need to put big things out in the summer. That's how we're going to make our money. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the students like, OK, we think we got it now. Uh, <laughs> and the, the age of the directors were, was kind of over. They didn't even get 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, didn't, they didn't even get 10 years, but they were also turning out like I think Dennis Hopper had done Easy Rider and then he, he did the last last movie, uh, which was sort of a debacle. So they were sort of some of them were shooting themselves in the foot anyway. Yeah. Uh, but then but once Jaws and Star Wars came out, that was game over because then the studio's like, OK, we got the formula now. Now we know. <laughs> Thank you very much. Let's take it from here. Well, you had that even uh, not exactly that same thing, but it seems like the studios are always trying to find a way to kind of stifle the creativity. And like I said, I just did a ton of stuff on Val Luton where he was given a title for a film and it's like, okay, here you go. Um, Go figure it out. And then they're still getting on him because they're saying, oh, this isn't horror enough. This isn't scary enough and this and that. The studios are, again, like I said, this is all through Hollywood. I mean, that goes even back to the old days. You know, yeah. where, um, uh, you know, they, they'd make them reshoot this movie or, or the, the, you know, well, we, we don't want that in there. Or, you know, whatever. It, it goes back to the old days where you, you didn't it wasn't always left up to the creative minds. And, and then in the 70s, they, it finally was. And I think that's when that's sort of when things started to, to change. Yep, absolutely. All right. I wanted to have I wanted to talk about one more thing before we move yep. off. Performance. Um, have you heard of the film? And this is. I, it was very hard to find this, but I've been wanting to watch it for a long time. Um, it's called uh, Don't Deliver Us from Evil. Oh, I actually have that. I think Mondo Macabro, Macabro yes, yes, put yes. it out. I I haven't seen it yet, though. I own it, but I have not seen it yet. Dave, I got to talk to somebody about this movie, and I think okay. you're unfortunately going to be the one <laughs> to okay. get it. No, I just really had searched and searched for this film, and the only way I found to buy it, I think it was on Walmart, that Mondo Macabro uh, DVD for like 25 bucks or something. Wow. Um, so I was like, well, I really like the setup of this. I really want to see it. It kind of reminded me of those, uh, boarding school type films that were coming out in Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. And this is two younger girls who are at a boarding school. I think it's a Catholic boarding school. And of course it is. And they're, they kind of develop this relationship, but they make this pact that they're going to do evil and they're going to serve Satan. And that's where the title don't deliver us from evil comes from, which is a good title, really good title. And it fits the film, but it's just, it's very hard to watch at points because these characters are supposed to be these teenage girls. And we get in these situations where I think you can probably see where this is going. It just gets a little sleazy. Okay. Um, But I, I really like, there's a scene um, early on where they're, 
they're in a church and they're given communion and they wait until they get back to their pews and they spit out the communion <laughs> into their hands and they're oh, wow. they're pulling all these pranks where they're stealing stuff from the the church and they're setting stuff on fire to get back at people and killing birds and it's all over this they're trying to do all this evil because they think they have this pact with satan wow and they act so tough and they act so big and tough you know like teens are prone to do they act tough and like they're on top of the world and then when they get into these certain situations you can see it just kind of crumble beneath them at points this ending is extremely crazy the ending came out of nowhere i kind of saw how much time was left and was like oh are we getting close to ending this and they had done something and they thought they were going to get in trouble and caught for it so we just have this ending scene where they're out of play and it's kind of hypnotizing dave um, I think I would recommend it. It's just very hard to watch for certain reasons uh, okay. a couple of times in the film. But I would definitely recommend that to anyone who's a fan of those maybe sleazier. You're not a you're OK with that kind of sleazy type of boarding school things. Um, almost a little bit. I don't know how similar it is because it's been a while since I've seen it, but kind of reminded me a little of Alicarda. Oh, Alicarda. Yes, we did that yeah. on uh, LOTC not too long ago. Yeah, there's certain um, themes. Well, I wouldn't say themes. I was but funny because I was thinking, kinda... I was thinking Alicarda a little bit with what you were sort of describing there, because yeah. that has a similar sort of um, it has a similar storyline. Yeah, and I think this is like I said, '71. I read the the um, synopsis and I was like, okay, I think I'm into this. And then I get the DVD in the mail and I look at the cover and I'm like, do I want to watch this? Because, <laughs> because you can tell from the DVD cover what kind of movie it's going to be. Yes. Um, and I'm sure everyone's kind of getting where I'm going with this. But I watched it and I'm glad I did. It's just one of those, I don't know if I'll watch it again, but it's definitely one of those cinematic oddities. And I think it's worth it just for that cool. ending alone. All right. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it. And there's plenty of uh, plenty of those. I mean, even in America, what was it? I spit on your grave. I, that's not a movie you return to very often. Yeah, and it doesn't get you know? as strong as that. It's not as bad as that. Okay. It's, I think it's more the fact that these girls are supposed to be underage, and one of the girls is just barely 18 when she's shooting this movie. Oh, wow. So it's kind of. Um, yeah, that's where I'm getting into with that. So yeah, not definitely for the a creep, a creep factor there yeah. for, for other reasons. Yes, yeah. it's creep. It's creepy. And that's yeah. that's fine. But I do think it's worth a watch. OK. Very so good. Um, I have to I have to pull out that DVD and check it out. Mondo Macabro, because they also put out a la carta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mondo Macabro. They really they're an interesting label. Oh, it's very weird. You know, they, they, they're they the ones who did the Bollywood horror films. Yeah. Yeah, extremely weird, but uh, even putting the DVD on and you get this weird Mondo Macabro ad in front of it. Yes. It, <laughs> <laughs> Almost like the old something weird. You ever have one of those something weird DVDs I, that you put in and they show I all the clips of so. the movies, um, like the, the Curious Dr. Hump and um, uh, uh, you know, those type of films show clips of, of that at the beginning of the something weird. A lot of yeah. uh, a lot of um, Herschel Gordon Lewis's stuff was originally released on something weird okay yeah that's that's definitely what you're getting here is kind of those weird clips yeah from these exactly films. that's awesome though I, I like that i like when i like when a label has that sort of introduction like that yeah and i don't know how much experience i had with mondo macabro i kind of got it in the mail and i'm like oh it's this red dvd and it's right they're all red <laughs> yeah i don't know it's cool i think it's cool to own um and it's cool that you have it too dr shock which you i mean 
own about everything, but I, I have a lot. And <laughs> once again, something I own and I haven't seen, and I probably didn't pay. I probably didn't pay a whole lot less than you paid for you. Yeah. To be honest with you. And I still haven't watched a damn thing. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Uh, Dave, one I think that you like, I'm pretty sure you do, that I just watched recently is Mark of the Devil. Yes, 1970. Right? Yeah, from Germany, yep. I believe. Yep. Udo Kier and yes. Herbert Lom. Yes, Udo Kier. Very, uh, very, very dreamy young. Udo Kier yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Yes, very young Udo Kier in this movie. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 almost like a Witchfinder General type of story, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. what I was thinking the whole time watching it. Yeah. And not I'm, much cheerier either, right? No, not much cheerier. Not, not much cheerier <laughs> at all. No. Um, and even and more brutal. Yes. Let's be honest. They were yep. it was there, there was more violence, I think, in Mark of the Devil than even in um, Witchfinder General. Yes. Yep, I agree there. But I. I loved it. I don't know. Maybe I'm sick, but <laughs> I really liked the film a lot. I liked it, too. I enjoyed it as well. I, I know I reviewed it on the blog um, and I know I gave it a good rating because I'm a fan of it also. I think it's uh, again, it captures that that time period. You know, one of the things that I think is so interesting about like Witchfinder General and this is just how it how it depicts um, uh, the, the whole, you know, uh, oh, this person's a witch, even something like the Crucible. Yeah, the Crucible. They, yep. They, they did a movie version of that um, with. Uh, You're talking about the it? Winona Ryder one. Winona Ryder, Daniel Day Lewis. Yes. Yes. You know the Crucible, where it's just how horrifying that is. That whole the way that the witchcraft was handled, because you basically was powerful men controlling the whole thing. Yep. You know, and deciding they were deciding who's a witch and who's not. And if they, if if the church wanted your land. You were mm-hmm. a witch. You had no defense. You were yeah. a witch and you were going to be put to death. And that's terrifying. Absolutely yeah. terrifying. You get that in Mark of the Devil. You get that in Witchfinder General and the Crucible. And that more than anything is what really just scares the hell out of me. Because to have lived in that time period, how can you defend against that? You can't. Yeah. You and I think can't. the um, the head witch hunter there had made a statement to Udo Kier because he was asking you know, where do you find safety? And he says, you don't. Um, there is no right. safety, not for yeah. me, not for you. And it's so true. And I think um, there's so many parallels between Witchfinder General and this, and there's such hard films to watch, but I think that's on purpose because the subject matter, it needs to make you feel that way to it does. get a grasp of what was going on at the time. So you know what what these people were living through, what yeah. they were going through, you know? Yeah. Um, and even I think even Monty Python did a great spoof of that <laughs> in, in uh, Holy Grail. Yes. Yeah. Now with uh, I think it was I think it was um, uh, was it Connie Booth uh, played uh, the, the the witch. I think married to John Cleese at the time um, pl- played the witch in that. And, you know, the uh, how do you figure out who's a witch? Uh, you know, it, it was a, it was a great spoof of it. But, you know, I think was it which one is you know, one of the movies it was a mark of the devil where they were talking about the test of finding a witch, you know, you throw them into the water or something. Oh, and if they drown, if they drown, then you know that you have were, an honest person. Yeah, exactly. We could put you in consecrated ground. If not, you're a witch and we're going to burn you. Either way, you're dead. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think. Thing. I think Mark of the Devil is more of I think the um, Witchfinder General comes from more of that traditional of what we heard were the test for witches. And I think and, uh, and, and that's based yeah, on a true story. 
That yeah. that Matthew Matthew Hopkins, he lived yes. and he was responsible for most of the deaths. Like I don't know, like a high percentage of those killed by a witch were all on his watch. Yeah, and they get power hungry, right? Um, yes. And that happens in Mark of the Devil, and I think Mark of the Devil is more like we have these just despicable people that are going out and going off of hearsay or making things to be true that they believe just for their own personal gain. And I mean, you get that in both, but I think where one focuses on more of the like traditional, what we've always heard about the witch hunts, the different Mm -hmm. tests. I think this one with Mark of the devil is much more like, Oh, these people are just making everything up. They're just going and saying, Oh, you have the Mark of the devil because I poked you in the stomach twice. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Funny story about Witchfinder general. I had watched it years and years ago and I must've blocked it out of my brain because a couple of years back, I went and I was like, oh, I haven't seen this, I don't think. And I went and watched it and I was like, yeah, I watched this. I just uh, must have just blocked it out completely. But. <laughs> yeah. And it's again, it's a tough movie to watch. I still think Mark of the Devil might be a little tougher. I think it is, too. You know, I think it's, it is, it's a, too. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, little rougher, um, but they, they both drive that point across that that these so-called men of God who had the final say over everybody, you know, and, and a lot of it is just. Uh, for their own personal reasons. I mean, it was Herbert Lom in this one, right? He's the one who played that character in uh, Mark of the Devil. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, And at least I, it's hard to say there's a silver lining because it, there is at least one of the main type characters that lives in Mark of the Devil. Yes. Where, which I guess, <laughs> same thing in Witchfinder General, but it's not going to, but there's no justice in either one of those films. No, there's be. not. No, there's just a a, a, a a reprieve for certain people. Yeah, well, I think <laughs> Mark know? of the Devil is worse because I don't think there's any kind of, I mean, yeah, one character lives, but everything else, like, goes yeah. the worst way it could possibly go. That's, it was, it's brutal. It is. Yeah. It's just a, and it's a brutal time period and a brutal thing to, uh, to have lived through, I'm sure. Yep, yep. So that was definitely high up there. I was watching all these kind of um, I call them comfort watches, I guess. Mm -hmm. I was watching things like um, Eyes Without a Face and uh, Black Sunday. Yeah, Black Sunday is awesome. Yeah. And Daughters of Darkness. And these are my like comfort films that I just really I really love these films and I love watching them. And then I get some stuff like Mark of the Devil and I'm like, oh, you know what? I really love this, too, but it's not. It's not a feel good story. <laughs> no, it's not a comfort. That's definitely Which I don't not. think the other ones are. It's just that certain time period that I just get um, kind of swept up in. Yeah. And, and and especially with like Black Sunday, Bava knew how to do it. I mean, that movie yeah. is just it's 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 a masterpiece. It's beautiful, you yeah. know, and you don't when you look at the story and what's going on, you wouldn't think that you'd call it like a beautiful film. But Black Sunday is a beautiful film. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely kind of opposed to what we're talking about now with some of these other films is Bava has this, it's this Gothic sweeping, like grand, like a Mm -hmm. sense of grandeur almost when you're watching these films and you got these beautiful sets. Yeah. I, I love Bava films. You're preaching to the choir there. So yeah, they're great. And they really, I mean, even when he wasn't at his best, like planet of the vampires. Oh, I love planet of the vampires. (laughs) There there are still things. I mean, I had, I had some issues with it, but I, I, it's still a beautiful movie. Yeah, it's a beautifully shot movie. And you see where um, uh, Dan O'Bannon, who wrote the script for Alien, yeah. got, you know, the, 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 with the, the he definitely borrowed from Planet of the Vampires. Oh, it's such a cheesy film, but I love that movie. Yeah, and I can uh, see it. And it, it but it's a lot of those 60s sort of sci fi films can be fun. Like yeah. when I talked earlier about the green slime. That's another one. It's goofy as hell. 
and the mm-hmm. creatures are just, you know, they look like Sigmund and the sea, mo- Sigmund, the sea monsters, you know, <laughs> from, from that old uh, Croft super show uh, is what they look like. They're just really goofy, but the movie's so much fun. Yeah. Yep. No, it's again, it's not a perfect film. When I say I love it, it's probably like a seven, seven and a half for me. Oh, well, yeah. Just, yeah. No, that's a, that's fine. Yeah. Hey, I, we all have them. I yeah. got I have movies like that, too. And, you know, the, the, I I say not so guilty pleasures because you're not going to feel yeah. guilty about watching guilty. them. Yeah. No, not <laughs> at all. Um, but they're ones that other people might look at and say, oh, what, 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 are you, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. No, I have plenty of those, especially with the uh, newer indie films. I'll, try to watch it day one so i'm not spoiled and then i'll be like oh i love this and i go look at other people's reviews afterwards and like oh everyone hated this so uh yeah you can't and you can't always go by that i mean uh what was it uh domino from 2005 the tony scott movie Mm -hmm. i love domino but boy did the critics hate it i mean that was (laughs) up for so many razzies actually the only major critic i read who actually liked it was roger ebert roger ebert actually which is straight yeah it's very strange yeah that he was a big fan of domino but i like domino too but you get that a lot you know and i'm thinking did, did i watch the same movie as you i don't i don't <laughs> see that i don't see this train wreck you're talking about yeah i i tend to try to like everything um it's mm-hmm. not hard for a movie to really make me happy you don't have to do right. a whole lot to get right. me to like your movie now I'm not just going to buy everything, but I try to like everything if I can. I go in with that mindset. So, that's good. but when I, I really I, don't like one, I really don't like it. So. Yeah, and that's that's with me too. When I go into a movie, I want to like every movie I watch. Mm-hmm. You do. You want to write, and it's because there were times with with the blog where you know, I mean, some, some critics get off on like really trashing a movie that they dislike. Yes. That they just don't like. Now a lot of them, it's their job. They mm-hmm. were paid to go see that. They have to review it. Yep. Um, but they sort of relish it a bit to sort of dig in at these movies. I can't do that. There were times when I would watch a movie for the blog and I just couldn't write anything about it because it was so bad and depressed <laughs> me. I would have to rush another movie in there, you know, to, to, to get my review out for the day when I was posting every day. Cause I'm like, I can't write about this. I just can't generate enough excitement to even trash this movie. I just don't feel like it. And I, I would have to watch another film. Yeah. I, Dave, I'm right there with you on a smaller scale. I'm not to the extent that you do with your great reviews at DVD Infatuation, but I would be really excited about seeing a movie going in and maybe I start the first 15 minutes of it. And I'm like, oh, I've got so much to say about this. I want to go say something about it when I'm done. And by the time I'm done, I'm like, ah, I've got nothing really to say about this movie at all. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah it's a shame. It, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's, it's depressing. To me, it's yeah. depressing because I really do want to love every movie. I mean, even though even that damn Uber Bowl. <laughs> was it house of the dead oh yes yeah i wanted to Did like that... it because i'm like everybody trashes this guy they just pile on to Uwe Boll. you know what i hope house of the devil surprises me oh it didn't <laughs> Did <laughs> no, you, it, um i think it was i was getting ready to say does that have christian slater but i think that was alone in the dark which i yeah. also watched was an Uwe Boll film and yeah. not great no no i think the, the, <laughs> my favorite one that i saw was blood rain and it's not good <laughs> I mean, I still say probably. Oh yeah, Blood Rain was point, okay. Three, three point yeah. five. Yeah. It's not going to get a high rating, but for Uwe Boll, you know that that's almost like an award. Yeah, you know, it's was, an award-worthy uh, film. Yeah, he does that, and then Paul W. S. Anderson also does the like video game adaptations that have nothing to do with the video games that they're going yes. after. Yeah, uh, things like Postal with Uwe Boll, and mm-hmm. yeah. Even like those Resident Evil films have nothing to do with the games. They're no. so far out there that they're. 
That's yeah. what I hear anyway. I don't play the games, yeah. but I've heard the same thing. Nothing. They have um, some of the characters, but they're basically shells of what they are in the game. But now, so. Paul W. Sanderson, did he not do Event Horizon? Yes. And which, I love yes. Event Horizon. Yes. Yep. Same here. Um, I just think he got – I probably lump him in because he just did so many of those Resident Evil sequels. You're right. He did. He did a lot of – he did the Resident Evil – yes, he did. He's not and, as bad as Uwe Boll. Even those Resident Evil movies are nowhere near – No. I see, for me – the, the Resident Evil movies and the first one I know is, is, you know, very well respected. For me, the movies got stronger as they went along. Yeah. I thought the Resident Evil movies got better as it got later into the series. Yeah. I I think the one that I didn't like – and it's funny as they get further in the series, they start introducing more characters that were in the games actually. But I think the third one is the only one I don't really like, and that's the one in the desert. Um, I don't oh, know okay. why. I don't know why I don't like that one, but I, I did. I did enjoy that one. I actually liked that one even a little bit better than than the, the, the two before it. Like I said, they just seem to get better. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're they not bad along. movies. No, no. Yeah. Even the first one's not a bad movie. No, no. I like the first one. It's a little yeah. um, it's got a little bit of that 90s, early aughts edge to it, mm-hmm. which I grew up in. So I'm it kind of turns me off eventually at, at the beginning. <laughs> but um, no, I, I like them. And same with the um, different director. But the Silent Hill um, adaptation oh, they right. did, yeah. I think, was a pretty good movie. Right. Yes, it was. Yep. Um, let's see. I had mentioned before, uh, Dave, what are your thoughts on Daughters of Darkness? Daughters of Darkness. Now, let me Have see. Have you seen it? I'm. It sounds familiar. I want to look it up because I think I may have. Let me just might have even done it for a podcast not too long ago. If it's the one I'm thinking of. It's a Belgium film from 71, if that helps at all. Daughters of Darkness. Let me just want to I just want to look at um, the synopsis because maybe I have not. Maybe I have not seen Daughters of Darkness, but it sounds so damn. Uh, nope. I, I have seen this. As a matter of fact, it wasn't okay. too long ago. We, we I think when we did 1971 on LOTC. OK, I watched it. As soon as I saw uh, a newlywed couple encounters a mysterious uh-huh. countess at a by passing through a vacation resort. Yes, I have seen Daughters of Darkness. I might have even reviewed this on the blog, which would be really <laughs> embarrassing that I didn't remember it. No, um, Dave, I bet you see so much stuff that it's kind of hard to keep track. And I have that with my year end list. It's like, yeah, I've seen 80, 90 movies. I don't remember half of these middle of the road movies to talk wow. about them at all. So, yeah, and I'm the same way, you know, because like even looking back now, like some of the movies just barely missed my list from 2019. And I'm looking back and say, gee, I don't even remember that now. Yeah, there's films that I actually really liked and were in my top 20 and it was I just don't remember them whatsoever. I'll have to go and look up a synopsis or like a plot description of it to know if I've what I thought about it. at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, th- this movie, I'm looking at my review and I say that um, it, it, at first glance uh, looks like a run of the mill exploitation film. It, it opens with a sex scene on a train. <laughs> it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty sleazy film. It is, but it's gorgeously shot. That's what yep. I have here. I, I thought yep. that the cinematography was very strong in this. I think it's a really a beautiful movie. Yeah, I love Daughters of Darkness. Um, it's actually, um, it's funny. I know uh, we've ta- you were talking about like Quentin Tarantino referencing things, and especially you brought up like Antonio Margaretti. Isn't that one of the um, filmmakers' names in the Inglorious Bastards there? At yes, the end? it is. It absolutely <laughs> is. You're right. <laughs> um, but Rob Zombie as well likes these exploitation films from the 70s 
60s and 70s. And Mm -hmm. he has in one of his songs, maybe a couple of his songs, he references several lines of this movie. And I that first time I watched it, that's what I picked up. I was like, oh, Rob Zombie sampled this. Um, But I do love it. It's this vampire story where this newlywed couple, um, they're on their way to England to meet the man's parents who didn't know about. And even that's a twist once you get to the end of his mother, so to speak. But they get stranded in I don't think it's Bruges. It's Ostend is where they get stranded and they stay at this grand hotel type place and in comes this countess and her assistant i guess servant maybe Mm -hmm. and the hotel manager's like i know i've seen you before i know you've been here before but it was when i was a child so we get that allusion to oh is she and i think her name is bathory her last name is bathory so i think yes elizabeth bathory yeah Yeah. so yep yeah um, so we get this, uh, well, is she this vampire? What's going on here? And it kind of just gets into the, it's very much like a seduction movie. It's very much, like you said, it's beautifully shot. It's got all these nice colors being that uh, European film from that time. And it's really this like neo-Gothic type story. And I I love Daughters of Darkness. I could gush about Daughters of Darkness, but yeah. I do too. Uh, but, but Stefan, you know, Stefan, um, yep. the husband He's a bit of a slime ball. He's very much a slime ball. <laughs> you know, in, in this movie, to the point that you you don't know, um, you, you almost want her to hook up with the with Countess. The yes, absolutely. Yeah. But then that ending is just, just crazy, too. Yeah. But the thing with Stefan is he's like, he seems like he's obsessed with death. And we get a couple yes. of where him and the, um, the Countess are going back and forth describing what they used to do um, back in the old country to these people to get the blood for it was for Bathory, right? For Countess Bathory. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about like removing fingernails and all these different tortures and everything like that. And and it's just creeping his newly wet or his newly wet wife out. And there's a scene where he's like looking at a dead body when they're in town and he's just staring at the dead body and it's really starting to scare her. And and he, and he won't tell his mother that they're married. No, no. You know, it's like a secret. You're like, why is it a secret? Yep. And he keeps saying, you know, I'll leave maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after he just keeps saying, yeah, I'll get ready. Yeah. He says he's going to do something. And then he pivots to, yeah, maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that's um, that's a very intriguing movie. And when it it takes a long time to get going. And but once it does, there's some stuff that goes. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So that's always been one of my favorites think the only thing i've got left here dave is do you want to get into a little bit of spain we haven't really touched on spain at all not too no we haven't and i think just franco that's where he um originated yeah. from was from, yeah was from spain yeah i'm gonna go ahead and start with just franco because i'm again like john roland i'm not very familiar with just franco well see like i said just franco's made so much mm-hmm. um i mean vampiros lesbos is one that leaps to mind when i think just franco mm-hmm. yep. um uh, venus and furs which mm-hmm. is a very interesting movie. You know, if you, if I were to pick what is uh, just Franco's best movie, I might go with that. I'm a fan of 99 Women, too. But that's more of a women in prison film. Um, he worked in a lot of uh, sort of across those genres. Okay. Uh, Countess, Countess Perverse. That was an interesting <laughs> one. Um, Eugenie, the story of her um, was I, I just remember as Eugenie and there's a there's a sub there's a second title that I can't remember what it is. He definitely gets into sort of the um the sleazier areas. 
You know yeah, where okay. where where Jean Roland was walking that fine line between art house and sleaze. And another one, Valerian Borowicz, um, uh, from uh, France. Yeah, yeah, did the right same ahead. thing. He was an, he dealt with erotic and, and the sort mm-hmm. of erotic uh, with horror, the beast. And uh, the story of sin, I want to say it was. And he did the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, which is another one. And there's a lot. There are sort of these these bigger ideas in the films, things that are going on. Uh, the Beast has some comedy in it as well, but um, but it's got these bigger ideas. But yet you also get these sleazy scenes. I mean, there's 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 the Beast opens up with horses having sex <laughs> you, you see you see these horses mating uh, in the opening scene of uh, of the beast uh, no it you opens with a quote when you... it op- yeah it opens with a quote a sort of very heady quote and i'm going to look that up now because i think i put that in my review of the beast uh when i reviewed it um but then the very next thing you see are horses having sex <laughs> uh, in in uh, in the piece, but yet it it still does sort of cross into. I mean, the first movie I saw by by Borowicz was um, was uh, Images in a Convent, which is another one. I mean that uh, you have a scene where where a nun uh, carves a, a dildo out of some wood that got thrown into her into her room. Oh gosh, <laughs> you know it's like one of those kind of movies. But yet yeah. there's still things happening. Uh, in, in there that that are kind of um, interesting. He he does have these sort of loftier ideas and these things that he's trying to get across. And I'm trying to find it now with with the beast, uh, like what it opens with. Oh, here it is. Okay, it oh, the quote he opens with: "Troubled dreams are in fact a passing moment of madness." So that's what you get. That's the the <laughs> opening title. That's what you see. And right after that, there's a close up of 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 a horse with a heart on. And then they watching the horse mount another horse. So that's the beast. That's what you get with him. He he did. And it got to the point where a lot of people he didn't get a lot of work. There's a really good documentary that came out um, last year or two years ago called Love Express. Uh, the disappearance of Valerian Borowitz. And it's what happened to his career where he was sort of they wanted him to keep making these these sexy films, these these erotic movies because that's what was making the money and that's what they wanted him to make until the point that he was labeled as, okay, that's the only type of films he can make. Uh, yeah, they're not in anymore. You're out. We don't want you anymore, but it wasn't the only kind of films we make. He was making them because they were sort of pushing him to make those films. He could do the art house. He could do sort of the loftier films again, horror, even like the, the curious case of, of, um, Dr. Jekyll, and Miss Osborne isn't as erotic as some of, as the beast put it that way, or some of his other films. And there's a lot, there are, there are actual debates, philosophical debates in that movie that are, are fascinating, but he got pigeonholed into that category of, yeah, okay. He's making, this is what he makes. No, we can't use you anymore. We don't want a sexy film. He's like, well, I can do other things. No, nope, no, nope, that's what you do and you're out. So it's really tragic, you know, what, yeah. what sort of happened to him in his career. And I do recommend if you get a chance to check out um, that documentary. Yeah, uh, it's, it's very interesting. And we see that time and time again, right, Dave, of people worrying about they're going to get typecast and why yeah. directors maybe don't stay in horror too long and they try to go and do other things. Maybe the smart directors are out there doing a little bit of everything right. um, while they can. Right. While they can. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That, that kind of goes into the it's perfect. That book you were showing me and I couldn't believe that when you s- sent it to me. But that really is what's going on. There's kind of this melding of 
horror and sexual stuff going on yes. at this time period all throughout Europe, right? Yes, it was. And they came over to America and, you know, they were playing. I mean, this was the time of, of exploitation. And, and really what happened was, you know, Hollywood um, was putting out the movies and they were sending them to the big multiplexes. And in a way, they were locking out the mom and pop uh, mm-hmm. theaters. Um, they weren't always sending them their first run movies. They wanted the best systems, the best, you know, the best projector system, best sound systems and everything. And a lot of the smaller theaters couldn't get that. So it was the exploitation market that was feeding them. So what do you, you know, what, what, what's going to beat the big Hollywood blockbuster? Well, let's show them things Hollywood won't show. Let's show the sex. Let's show the violence. Let's show things. Let's get a crowd in for, you know, that a crowd in them wants to see that. And a lot of that, like you had biker films, you had the Nazi exploitation coming Mm -hmm. out of, uh, out of uh, Europe mostly. Um, And you had these type of movies like Jess Franco, like we're talking about and Valeria Borowitz. A lot of these guys played in those in those theaters because that's what you know that that was the draw sex was the draw violence was the draw and uh that's why there was a market over here for that yep for those kind of movies because there there were theaters that needed to show something and they needed to draw an audience in order to make money and that's that's what packed them in you know when you were selling that sort of uh that sort of movie and that's why i mean even with jess franco like i think i told you i think i don't know if it was i think it was 1981 jess franco directed 12 movies basically a movie a month but most of them looked like a movie uh, made by a guy who directed a movie a month you know they were not good movies yeah jess franco ultimately had more misses than he did hits but from a guy who directed over 200 movies that's still pretty impressive yeah you know that, that he was had what he did and some of them are not great. Um, but uh, like I said, uh, Venus and furs is a good one. Um, Vampiros Lesbos is interesting. I don't know if I'm going to say it's great because, because <laughs> to be honest with you, I think in, in my review of it, I said he forgot the Vampiros, but brought the Lesbos big time <laughs> in that movie is what he yeah. did. I've always been on the fence about that one, Dave, because I'm, I'll want to watch it and then I'll read something about it. I'm like, ah, maybe I don't want to watch it. I don't know. It's, 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 you know, the, you don't get much vampire action in the movie. (laughs) You don't a lot of lesbian, but you don't get much, much, uh, vampire action in, uh, Vampiro's Lesbos. Uh, but Venus and furs has some interesting things going on in it. And like I said, there were other ones as well. Um, that, that, that he came out with. I, I like 99 women. I thought 99 women was a good movie. And there are other, there are other films that, that, you know, he directed over the years. He directed right up into the early two thousands. I want to say, which is crazy. Paula Paula, I think might've, was that his last movie? That might've been late nineties. I, it might've been late nineties. Now I have to look it up. <laughs> I know I have Paula Paula, which is a very late, uh, Jess Franco film. Hey, at and least I don't he was know still putting out stuff up until that. I mean, yeah, like you said, over 200 films directed. That's pretty insane. That's that pretty is, monumental that there. That is insane. Absolutely, that's insane. And again, uh, a, a wide range of quality. Not really a wide, wide range of quality. Mostly. Do, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's mostly. Um, but he did do a version of Dracula. Or, or um, well, he did a Jack the Ripper. Oh, yeah, yeah. Klaus Kinski in it. Yeah, he did. Um, uh, Dracula with Christopher Lee, right? Count Dracula. Yes, I think it was. And and he wanted to film at the time they were promoting it as the closest. And it had Herbert Lom in it as well. He worked with Herbert Lom also because Herbert Lom was in 99 Women. The okay. guy who was in Mark of the Devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was also in um, he was also in Count Dracula. And it is it was being billed at the time as the most faithful adaptation 
of Bram Stoker's novel. Now, I think it gets a little off the rails as it goes on, but it's an interesting movie. It is. Um, and like I said, I think he did a version of Jack the Ripper with Klaus Kinski. And That's I don't remember. Too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember what party played, but you'd think Klaus Kinski should probably play Jack the Ripper. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> I don't know who he played, but he should probably play Jack the Ripper. And I think was it in Count Dracula that Kinski. Yeah, he played Renfield. Klaus Kinski okay. played Renfield, but he sense. didn't talk. He refused to talk. Ah, yeah. Because what happened was Jess Franco had sent him a script where he was the star of the movie. And then when he got there, he found the part really like was not that, that he was sort of brought in under false pretenses. So I think I read somewhere where Klaus Kinski refused to talk. So Renfield is completely <laughs> silent in 1970s Count Dracula. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's something, at least. I don't know if it's awesome, but... Right. So what else from Spain? Um, Dave, are you familiar with Narciso Abana's Cerador at all, um, who directed The House That Screamed and uh, Who Could Kill a Child? Um, uh, you know what? Who can kill it? Was was it Who Can Kill a Child? That was the one that was remade with as Come and Play, not too long ago. Is I, that what I'm thinking of? I'm I not think sure. What, I think Come it and Play. Be. I think Come and Play, which came out in the early 2010s, or uh, Come Out and Play. Come Out and Play. It was called. I well, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm wrong. Let me let me look up. Um, I'm not sure. Can, I'm just Who not Can familiar. Kill a Child. It, it basically the one that came out. Um, not too long. It was, it was a straight up remake okay. of who can ki kill a child. And I think okay. it was also Spanish. I'm looking at IMDb now for the connections. Um, I think it was called come out and play, but I just want to, I just want to make sure connections. I want to see, I think it was called come out and yes, come out and play from 2012. Okay. See, I've never heard a straight of straight up one. remake. I saw that. I think before I saw who can kill a child. Okay. I saw the original one. Uh, and that's a strong one. But Who Can Kill a Child is is good. I mean, that's a strong yeah. one. And it doesn't pull any punches either. No, uh, it does not. Yeah, I mean, you're going to get what you what you think you're going to get. You've got these. I think it's a um, I think it's a husband and wife. Maybe they're just dating. And they. it's been a while since I've seen this. But they're going to this island, I believe, for some kind of getaway. Mm -hmm. And they get there. And it's similar to um, Children of the Corn, right? Where there's kids. It's all kids, And yes. there's not parents. Right. But it's much more brutal than Children of the Corn, I think, yes. for what you get on screen, because they're not like I said, they're not afraid to go there. It's not a very pleasant movie, but I think that's a really strong one. And the one that he had done before, The House That Screamed. Now, have you seen that, Dave? Um, it, the other title would be like La Residencia. No, I don't believe I've seen that one. So that's a really good one. It's, again, like a boarding school type thing. Mm hmm. And. You've got this boarding school where the headmistress, played by Lily Palmer, is very strict. And we see, like, they're not above whipping and flogging students. Uh -huh. And you just get this where we get this setup of where girls start to disappear. Um, there's this one head girl who's kind of given the keys to everything. And she's kind of running the whole system. Like, uh -huh. who gets to go out and sleep with the guy who brings the wood every week or who gets to do this and that. And it's very interesting because the violence level is almost that of like a TV movie. And where we get to some of these kills, it's almost like it does that freeze frame thing where we get music oh, wow. over it. Like you'd see right. in a TV movie, but I really like it. It's really atmospheric. Um, I like what happens in it. And that ending is pretty shocking. It's pretty shocking stuff. And it kind of comes out of almost nowhere. I don't think I expected it when I saw it, but wow. I think it 
does really good about that. It's another one of those boarding school movies that I really love. And it builds that tension and you do get all of that. It's maybe a little rushed and maybe not as much of the gore and stuff that you would like to see and kind of weird choices in place. But I think it's pretty strong, at least for like a one time watch. Okay. And this, what is it again? I'm sorry. The title the house again? that screamed the house that screamed. And there's oh, a really it's... good, I believe it's shout scream factory release. Oh, nice. Um, I think it's, that's, a, that's another one that's knocking it out of the park. Yeah. I believe that's who, who put that out, but either way it's out there. And the guy who directed both these films, um, Narciso Abanya Serador, he actually had his own. So he was known for these two big horror films and he had his own show in Spain, I believe. And it was kind of like an Alfred Hitchcock presents, but it was his version of that. Oh, nice. So he's a big deal. And he came back and did um, in Spanish horror. There's this I think it's called Six Films to Keep You Awake. And it was done in the mid aughts. And it's got oh, Alex de la Iglesia does one of them um the guys that do rec had done a film in this um but there were these six directors and he was one of them serador was and they did these six films that were played on tv in spain and i've got a dvd of this and they're very interesting they're all very interesting but you can tell they're tv movies but it's really cool to see that he's kind of like this um larger than life figure in spain in the horror scene because they didn't have a whole lot of those icons but you know they gave him his own tv show he came back decades later and did the six films to keep you awake so nice. i really like his work oh that's awesome yeah and i think wasn't spain uh, that did the blind dead yes and was that's also Asorio. yep De yes yeah De yeah did the blind dead movies as well yeah the first one of those i saw was unfortunately night of the seagulls was it no wait that's the fourth one what's the oh third? no no the galleon the ghost galleon is the bad one okay that's the one i saw that's yeah. the one i saw that was the first I, one I saw. I get those confused, too, because the titles don't make any sense after you. No, you no. get um, Tombs of the Blind Dead. And again, I caution anyone, do not see the English releases of these movies yeah. because they cut them to pieces. You don't see the violence. You don't see any of nudity or anything like that. It's all cut out, and they're very disjointed, and the dubbing is pretty bad, too. So I think it was in America. As a matter of fact, I think it was in a Mill Creek. Yeah. That I saw, and I don't think it was called the Ghost Galleon. I think they called it something else. And I tell you what, Synapse is working on a restoration of Tombs of the Blind Dead, and I've been waiting for it forever. It was supposed to come out last year, but with everything going on, they delayed it. But it's that I think initially it was going to be all four at once. But I think now they're just doing the original because it's very hard to find um, copies of this now. They had a pretty cool set a while back of DVDs, and it came in like underground. Yeah, and it came in a coffin. Is that the one we're talking? They had like a special edition that came in a coffin, Dave. And they might have. I didn't get yeah. that when I had bought them before that. I owned them yeah. before they did that, but I can see them doing that. Yes. Yes. Um, which Blue Underground's another good. Blue Underground is a, is a good one. Stuff. Yeah. I know. No coffin. Now that it wouldn't be coffin Joe. Coffin Joe's not Spanish. I think that's South no. It's American. Brazil. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. But I love Coffin Joe. I almost bought yeah. a three pack of that the other day, and I held off. Um, oh, nice. I was. I was. I was lucky enough. I was sent Embodiment of Evil as a screener. As a oh, that's the screener. new one, right? That's yeah, the, that's the newest. That came out newer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I love those. Um, I haven't seen the newer newer one yet, but I love the first two. Right. Yep. But no, I'm I'm really excited to see because the first time I saw Tombs of the Blind Dead, it was that um English version that was cut to pieces and was mm. dubbed and not very good. But I listened to um 
Greg Amortis actually, I think yes. they covered those yeah, um, when they did. were back doing European horror films mm-hmm. with Dr. Dirty um, back in the day. So I think they talk about that too, where there's huge differences between the two releases. Yep. Yep. They did. So that's the other thing in Spain I'm thinking about. I mentioned earlier a little bit was uh, the living dead at Manchester morgue, which was directed mm-hmm. by Jorge Grau. Um, yeah. You don't think of that maybe as a Spanish film because it's, Got, I think, an English cast, and it was shot in England. But the crew and Jorge Grau were Spanish. Oh. So cool. that's interesting. Have you seen that one, Dave? Um, and that's also is Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, yes. right? That's yes. the other title. I think yep. I I think I have. Yes. Okay. And I think it was years ago for a uh, for a podcast. But I'm talking like back when I was first started podcasting in yeah. 2010, 2011. I think I saw that. Yeah, I don't think it's that memorable of a film. I liked it. I think it's fine. Um, the opening's much more memorable where they're going through London and you just see a streaker, like a woman streak across the oh, road. Right. That's a, and you're seeing all these <laughs> shots of wherever they are in England. I think it's in the north north end. Um, but it's very cool opening, but I don't remember too much else about it. Right. But yes, I know. And I think he did. Um, there was one on a train. Maybe it was called Horror Express with Christopher Lee and Peter yes. It is called Horror Express. Yep. Yes. And he did that one as well. Oh, wow. Yep. See, now, I always thought that was a, a, a British movie. It was the same deal. It was the same deal. Wow. In Spain, okay. But um, shot these movies in England. That's awesome. Yeah. Just a quick producer's note. Horror Express was actually directed by Eugenio Martin and not Jorge Grau. And then you probably, I'm assuming you're a big fan of Pieces. Right, Dave? Yes. Yes, I am. Which is another Spanish film. Maybe the most it is famous out there. period. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it out is there. Out, I mean, the violence, the, the gore in that is 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 off the charts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially when they find that one girl in the, in the bathroom. I mean, it is off the charts. Absolutely. Um, but it is such a strange movie. The, the, the woman who gets attacked by the uh, by the by the martial arts master or whatever the out of the then all of a sudden he's like oh i'm sorry my bad and then just walks away uh and the reason i found out was the the producer of the movie was also putting out the kung fu films uh, and he wanted to slip it in there as sort of a way to help promote <laughs> bruce <laughs> lay i think it was yeah it was, Dave, does uh, that um correct me if i'm wrong is that the one that starts off where the boy's putting a puzzle together and he gets yes. upset kills his mom because the mother, because it's a, it's a naked woman. Yeah, and she takes it away. out, <laughs> and so then he takes. Yeah, he 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 wanted to finish the puzzle, I guess, because he takes out mom. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's that's terrifying. It's wild. It's it's a wild <laughs> movie, and it's out there. But and I remember that the guy who plays either the gardener or the caretaker um, is the same guy who played Bluto in Popeye, the 1980 <laughs> oh. movie Popeye. Paul Smith. I think it's like a very generic name for this guy. Oh man. Um, I think he was also in Midnight Express, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. But I think he's the guy who's he's all, even one of the suspects, one of the prime suspects in pieces. Um, uh, as the murderer, because he's the only that. one. He's the only one walking around with a chainsaw in the movie. Well, <laughs> yes, I remember sure. that. Paul L. Smith. It's Paul L. Smith, and I'm pretty sure he did pieces right after he was in uh, Popeye. <laughs> In 1980, is yeah, he did. He played he played Willard in in pieces, and he played Bluto uh, in uh, in Popeye. Yep, yep, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, let's see, Dave. I'm thinking, and there's probably people screaming here though. You haven't talked about 
England at all and Hammer Horror. Uh, I think I told you. You, before, you were going to touch. Yeah, you wanted to touch on that in a, on another podcast. Yeah, that could be its own episode. Oh, I mean, a lot of these could be their own episodes. Yeah, well, it's just England in general when you've got um, not only that, but you've got the uh, folk horror that came out of England, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, Eastern Europe, yeah, there was some stuff over there, but mainly. Yeah. And then you've got the video of Nasties, which I want to do an episode on. Um, yeah, I mean, not not all of those were British. Most of them were from the U.S., but yeah, the right, video but the, Nasties, yeah, yeah the video censorship Nasties, came from the U.K. Exactly, oh, they said, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, they were prosecuted. There yeah. was somebody, the movie, 1981 movie Nightmare, some guy refused to, one of the distributors refused to edit it, and he was jailed. He did time, he did jail time for that. <laughs> Oh, I I love that topic and I love that whole uh, especially like censor that came out this year yes. that talks about censors. Um, oh, really, that's that, that could be on my top. It's probably going to be in my top ten. I think it's sitting year. in there in about the middle of my top ten right now. So we'll I, see it's how so that ends cool out. Because it's about a censor. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is it, it doesn't vilify the censors. No, it shows them as people just doing a job they feel is important. But it also shows that it's not movies, but trauma that could turn somebody violent by how it handles the main character, the censor. Yes, and I love you that know? ending, that whole set piece at the end. Oh, where that the, is that so movie. cool. Oh. And the way it's going back and forth between her fantasy and reality. Yes. Chilling. <laughs> it's really a chilling ending to that film. Oh, I love it. Yeah, but um, yeah, so yeah, Hammer was obviously a huge part of horror at this time. And then we get the folk horror. And we already talked a little bit about Witchfinder General. Yeah. Um, but Wicker I'll definitely. Man, Wicker Man. Wicker Man. Hold um, yeah. on Satan's Claw, which I, if you haven't seen that, I suggest anybody watch that too. That's that third film they talk about in the Unholy Trilogy with mm-hmm. Wicker Man and Witchfinder General. And I love Blood on Satan's Claw too. Nice. Awesome. But yeah, definitely get into probably a whole set of episodes on the uk at some time yeah. so we're not purposely omitting that one and it's hard it's hard in a couple hours to touch on all the movies from all these other countries i mean we left out yep. plenty from italy we left out plenty i'm sure from france and spain yep. um and you just can't you can't hit them all so but but uh but this was great i enjoyed uh sort of you know sort of going back and forth in these movies yeah and we kind of went all over the place and that's what i wanted it to be dave i didn't want it to be really scripted or structured i'm trying to make this i think going forward when i do the stuff like with val luton i want to do a more focused um mm-hmm. creator spotlight type thing sure. but when i'm doing a topic like this maybe do like a broad overview and then i want it to be like a variety show like i said i want to do the next episode barbara Steele. maybe i'll do one that talks about spain and the history that came up before spain that caused their movie industry to be so weird mm-hmm. um, why they didn't get into films until later so I could I don't know what I'm going to do yet for the remainder of the episode. And this was topic, certainly but... a variety show because I know we, we were talking oh, we about everything. <laughs> we, we, were, we went everywhere. We were talking about what uh, um, actually. What, no, I think our Hannah Barbera talk was off. Off. Yeah. Like, I don't think that was while you were recording. But no. uh, we, we were talking about Miyazaki. We were getting all over. Yeah. The... <laughs> yeah. And I, I like that. I think that makes for good listening that you're not just focused on one thing. And this is kind yeah. of an introduction to anyone who's interested and in maybe not that um, hasn't delved that deep into the European stuff. But mm-hmm. I certainly had a good time. Is there anything else, Dave, that you um, had written down that you want to talk about? Uh, no, I think right at the end there, um, you know, bringing up uh, just Franco and uh, Valerian Borowitz, uh, those were the two. 
those were the two that I wanted to sort of um, get into, especially Valerian Borowicz, just because uh, that documentary Love Express that came out not too long ago um, and just what happened to that poor guy. No, that was it. Uh, and uh, I thank you for um, for indulging me with those. Oh, absolutely. I was going to I had it already set in. I was just going to let Dave go wherever he wants because you just have so much knowledge about the about all film really in general. I mean, we you've talked thank about you. that tonight. You've went all over the place with. Yeah where we were and i love that um and i sometimes sometimes i keep i say to myself god reel it in i'm, I'm getting too far <laughs> i'm going too far down the down the rabbit hole here i don't know yeah. if i'll be able to make my way back out it's that fine line between letting it go and then knowing when to like pull it back from the depths. exactly right? yeah because sometimes i'm like okay how am i going to get back to talking about jean roland you know after <laughs> after this this little uh uh aside yeah, you got to look for your segues, Dave. You got to look for right. your segue opportunities. But, um, yeah, well, I really appreciate you being on. Again, make sure keep your eyes posted on Twitter for that giveaway or go over and leave a review. Um, Dave, you want to give your plugs before we sign off here? Sure, sure. Um, uh, well, DVDinfatuation.com is my blog. Um, I'm still posting reviews. It's not every day anymore, but I'm posting reviews every other day, keeping the number going. I hit 2,500 in, back in 2018, which was my goal. Um, and I think right now I'm up into the 2650s or something like that. So I haven't done too many since 2018 yeah. and now, but I'm now getting back into it. And I'm starting to do um, release them on a more regular basis. Uh, so that's DVDinfatuation.com. I'm on Twitter at DVDinfatuation. I'm on Facebook also. I'm on Instagram. Um, I have my uh, my YouTube channel. Oh, I'm on Letterboxd also. I have mm-hmm. my YouTube channel. I haven't posted anything since the summer, partly because I just can't remember my login to <laughs> Get into that account. I got a new phone. It it erased it. It went back to um uh, an old account of mine for some reason, and I just can't get into the DVD infatuation. Uh, not DVD. Well, my my yeah my um uh, YouTube channel. Uh, but I will at some point, and I'll start posting more videos over there. Also, as far as podcasts, I have the uh, the uh, Illustrated Fan, which is an offshoot over in Phantom Galaxy. Uh, I do with Nathan Bartleball where we look at uh, animated films. Um, we have one that we're going to be doing not in the very near future. We're actually going to be talking Miyazaki. Oh, yeah. Um, with, a, with a co-worker of mine uh, who is actually um, studying uh, animation, going to school for animation. Oh, that's awesome. Um, going to join us for that. Then uh, the DVD Infatuation podcast, which is hosted by uh, Jay, Jason Piles, Jay of the Dead, over in his Considering the Cinema uh, site. Um, Jay's the reason I do that show. He really wanted me to do a, uh, DVD infatuation and he edits them and he <laughs> puts the music clips. He handles all of that for me because if not, I just, they wouldn't exist. I couldn't do that at this point. Um, so I thank Jay for that. And that's at considering the cinema.com. Um, and of course, uh, the, uh, land of the creeps with my very good friends, my brothers from another mother, Greg Amortis and Bill the butcher and of course, uh, Greg's lovely wife, Pearl, uh, jumps onto the mic every now and again, and th- but does a lot of the behind the scenes. And she's one of the reasons why the Facebook group is is so strong for uh, Land of the Crease. Both Greg and Pearl do a great job of just keeping it. Um, it's it's a it's a very friendly 
community. It's just um, definitely if you haven't uh, gone over to the Facebook page for Land of the Creeps, you really should because it's a great group. Uh, and finally, the Horror Movie Podcast. We actually won the uh, Silver Bowler Award about a year and a half ago now, I think it was, uh, that uh, Joe Bob had given out on on uh, the last drive-in. Um, and that is with, um, well, right now it's with uh, myself and uh, Wolfman Josh. Uh, Yo Man Joel is stepping back a little bit uh, from it. So it's just going to be a two-man show for a while. Um, and again, that's horror, That's the Horror Movie Podcast. Yeah, awesome, Dave. That's such a long list. And I want to point out a couple of things is um, one on Letterboxd. I've seen recently you've been putting out a ton, it seems like, over on there. Yes, I and it's it's because I'm posting on Facebook and and then I copy them over to Letterboxd. I'm just doing a um. See what I'm doing is I'm I'm having months and I'm having themes for months. Um, like uh, I started out this time last year. I started I was posting my 200 favorite movies alphabetically. Then I did my 50 um, guilty pleasures. Then I did um, underappreciated movies. And now um in October, of course, I did 31 horror films. Now I'm having slashers November. And as along with posting them on Facebook, I also post them over on Letterboxd at the same time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I just noticed recently you've just had such an influx of reviews coming down the line. It's, and It's been quite a bit recently. Yeah. yeah. I, I for, for the longest time, I was ignoring Letterboxd. Now all of a sudden, I'm on there like gangbusters. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and Dave, I can recommend anything you've been on. I don't think I've not enjoyed any, any show that I've listened to that you're on. So Well, thank you. Thank you very yeah. much. I appreciate that. Yeah, and even um, I think maybe a little more underrated, the DVD Infatuation podcast and the Illustrated Fan, and both of those are solid shows. So thank you. Don't thank you. If you get away from HMP and LOTC a little bit, Dave's doing good work all all around. So well, thank you. I I, I, again, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you so much for being on. Um, As always, you can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. That's pretty much the only social media I'm on right now. You can follow or you can send an email over to Screaming Through the Ages at Yahoo.com and the website ScreamingThroughTheAges.com hosts all of the episodes. Until next time, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.